I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is the Nokomoto ep- uh, Nokomoto Podcast, episode number 296, I believe. Sorry, 196. Jeez, I do that all the time. Okay, so it's been a while. I think, what, like seven weeks since a regular episode, something like that? Maybe longer. A little too long. A little too long, but it's okay. We're going to do a really good long episode here to help you get your fix. Part of the reason for why it's been so long, we are here in yet another studio because Swigs bought a house. And we have an entire room of this house dedicated to this podcast. It's pretty sweet. So we've said this before. The sound might be a little bit funky. It might be a little echoey or something weird. It's probably just going to sound fine. But know that we will be dialing the sound in here. Okay. So let's see. What have we got to get to? We've got to get to so much this stuff. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode, I kind of feel like we should just do a double best worst bike. And I know there's a bunch of news stories and things like that that we can get to. There's all kinds of stuff I want to talk about. So I think we're just going to kind of wonder through what's been happening over the last few months in the motorcycling world. Um, First thing I want to say is, as it's like two episode 196, and we're approaching uh, an arbitrary an arbitrary event, I am going to suggest that in honor of the Misfits having their 500th episode, we should have a 200th episode, right? I like it. Yeah. So we're going to do it a little bit differently than other people might do their big uh, episode anniversaries. So for the 200th episode, I am going to ask all our listeners, any past guests, any anybody, I want everyone to find their least favorite and worst moments of the show. If you can give me an episode title and a timestamp, uh, we will go through and play those moments. Those worst moments. I'm looking for times that we were absolutely wrong. I'm looking for moments we were just inappropriately drunk or just general examples of bad broadcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just really bring us your worst, you know, just the, the most sick, poor and tired moments of this show or other shows. Even I'm open to that too. So that is your homework assignment as listeners, okay? Now, uh, there was one singular event that we left off the last episode saying that we were going to talk about this episode, right? Which was the conclusion to the MotoGP season. It's been a while, okay? So I'm sure everyone knows the results. Everyone knows what happened, okay? But I think it's just worth bringing up again anyway. And oh my gosh, at the at the end of the season, just what a Cinderella story. What, I mean, from way back in the pack, Kaito Toba just launching himself to the front as my favorite Moto3 rider. 
punching Jamin Masia, my former favorite Moto3 rider, in the face through his helmet. I Just a, a, an all-time top moment for me. This is up there for me when... Um, uh, uh, was it Jakob Kornfile doing the like ramping off another bike? Yeah, right. This is up there with Darren Bender doing the double middle fingers mid slide into the gravel. Right. This is so it was Jame Masia's fault. I can't remember what corner it was exactly, but Jame Masia was pulling some sort of sketchy move and he took them both out and. I, this is just so wonderful. It was already Jame's fault. And then he walks towards Kaito in the gravel pits and he's doing one of those like slow clap, like way to go asshole moves. Right. And then Kaito Toba, they're both still in full gear, just starts a fist fight with him. I, neither of them could have behaved any better. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> this is this was a perfect storm of awesome. Uh, Does MotoGP need to have like um, end of season like grudge match boxing? I, I'm in favor of it. Obviously, I, well, you know, um, just everyone gets the opportunity to call out one guy, and they have to fight. Yeah. If it's your rookie season, you have to fight. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> So, you know, it's Valencia and Valencia's an interesting race. I don't know if we've really talked about the special dynamic that is Valencia. It's a very Phillip Island kind of track in that it's kind of exhausting and it's pretty much impossible to run the whole race flawlessly. Right. So it's mm -hmm. a, it's a big equalizer kind of track. The, the cream tends to rise. You don't, it's not that there aren't surprise winners at Valencia, but there's rarely surprise winners. You know, whoever's kind of on top of their game is gonna, is kind of going to emerge at that track. So the, the thing about Valencia is, well, if you can't win the season or if you had a string of bad, bad races or if you just unfairly got taken out and you know your championship hopes were what you know valencia is like well let's end on a good note let you know this is a track where you know wherever you finish that's how you rank kind of you know even if the season sucked it's like well did you see where i finished at valencia it's it, i mean it's your last chance to make a mark so when you take someone out at valencia they take it pretty hard yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and it's just so perfect with, with I mean, kind of was, he's a good writer, you know, but Jame was, yeah, kind of had an average season for him. Not really amazing. Nothing tragic. He's going to the Leopard thing. He's already got his rides sorted. I don't know if, if Kaido kind of had all his contract ducks in an order when that happened. Well, uh, it can only be better now. I mean, yeah. I, it, I, it, if Kaido Toba was being traded on the NASDAQ, like I would have gone all in. It would have been 100% of my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I, you know, I was saying a lot about like, oh, I don't know, maybe let's put Ayagura on on that second bike next to Mark Marquez, and I'm like, my kind of toe was looking pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Beyond that, I do want to say that. A lot of people for the Moto2 Championship thought Ayagura threw it away. I hard disagree. Hard disagree. I think whether he was going to win the championship or not, Ayagura had kind of done all the work he needed to do already. He was already not going to go to GP whether he won the season or not. He was already he'd already just really solidified his name with Honda and he's, he's just in the pipeworks for perhaps a GP seat at some point, probably more, um, uh, LCR Honda than Repsol, but still he's kind of GP bound. Nonetheless, they've just got to find the right time to put him in. And he's set himself up to be the obvious choice for next year's championship win. And, uh, he was racing like a real racer. People said, he, you know, he was pushing too hard and maybe he just couldn't take the pressure or it was just too exciting or whatever. He just wasn't going to hold back for whatever reason. And it was, it was exciting to watch. It was like, holy crap, he's going to do it. And then there was a big upset crash. And, uh, how many of us that followed GP closely didn't stand up and go, Oh my God, that was a huge moment, right? These races, you know, they're great for all the, the nonstop action, but they're also great for these big moments. It was a big moment and it it was entertaining. And I, I, well, the other other thing I'd point out is that, you know, if you look at the, the, the current generation of MotoGP riding, If you go back to like, say, you know, even if you go back to essentially like the beginning of the, of the current, you know, the current four stroke era, objectively, the Japanese riders have just not been exciting to watch. Right. They've been very consistent in their placement. They've generally not really excelled, but you know, you're like, oh, hey, Ayagura, top five, three races in a row looking okay maybe occasionally we'll pull off a win but it's never it's never a nail biter it's never exciting it's never hot and cold it's always just kind of lukewarm all the time i mean they're still some of the greatest riders in the entire world but it's there's been no i mean it hasn't been exciting well let's look at it this way we're into winter testing now if you ask me, well, what was the Moto, like, what what was your takeaway of the Moto2 season this year? I'd say it was Ayagura's story throughout the season. Getting yeah. a good early lead, then kind of losing a lot of points, and I don't know, then it being a nail-biter finish, like, to, like all the way down to the last race, and then uh, Ayagura had this big crash and kind of threw away the championship in a way. You know, uh, it, like, ask me who won. Who won? I don't know. Was it like Mike Pence or something? Isn't that like <laughs> I, 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 no, I know who won. But like I, it, the story is, is I, it was Ayagura's year. Like Ayagura's story dominated the season, I think. Right, yeah. 
So I think he'd already done what he needed to do. And he really, yeah, like you said, he brought in a level of excitement in a Japanese rider. And we just really haven't seen that for like ever. But like, not just a Japanese rider who wins, a Japanese rider who is exciting. You know, he's not painting by numbers. It's really cool. So, yeah, I don't really have much else for the end of the GP season, honestly. I mean, Bagnaya won it, obviously. Um, that was great. You know, it's cool to have a Ducati win. The whole championship hasn't happened for a while. It's like a record number of Ducati wins for a season. Um, is he normalized? Like the second we, most well, successful Ducati winner, like just by pulling out the like. Can we normalize for the number of Ducatis on the grid? Um, <laughs> well, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. In a way, that kind of makes it a little bit more impressive, though, because with how many Ducatis are the on the grid. I think it's something like after Casey Stoner, he's like the most winning Ducati rider. It's weird to think about. Yeah. Uh, Ducati's well, kind of been like a podium bike, but not really a big winning bike. Well, I would also say that it's really impressive how many previous year model Ducatis have been getting podiums and wins. Yeah. Yeah, it always seems like everyone thinks, like, for the last three years, the best bike on the grid was whatever the Ducati from the year before was. Well, it's it's it, kind of held true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, every every new Ducati is, like, the next Windows Vista. It's just totally fucked up, and it, it's... It doesn't really pull it all all together until it's a year old. And yeah, they have to change the song. name to like yeah the the Ducati Eight or something like oh, wait. it's really just the Ducati Vista with a couple updates. Like, you know, it, they have to change the yeah the, the the every the current year Ducati always has a perception problem, and then it gets that they kind of iron it out after a year. They work some kinks and bugs out, and it's like this is a great bike. That is a thing, yeah. Whereas with the Honda, you always want the current Honda. Hmm. That's a good point. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm kind of done talking about GP now. I mean, again, like Iagora, great story. Bagnaya, super cool that Ducati's really top level again, like not since the Casey Stoner days, like 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 seriously, like 2013. Uh 2012 did he was his stoner was it 12 or 13 that stoner won the last time it's uh, been a hot minute i want to say it was 12 12 sounds right in my head uh yeah he won two championships one was in like 2010 what was 2012 or 2009 and then 2012 whatever well, it was in 2013 because 2013 was marquez yeah um I should just Google it. I've got a computer in front of me, but it doesn't matter. Um, all right, let's look it up because <laughs> I'm just going to sound like such an idiot. Uh, 2007, 2011. I was kind of close with 2009, 2011. Um, all right. 
He's only 37. Good God. I always forget he's fucking younger than that. He's been out of it for so long. I'm just like, oh, yeah, old man Casey Stoner. All right. So let's get on to best worst bike. What do you say? Let's do it. Okay. Here's that part of the show where me and Swigs have each chosen a bike. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. One of them is going to be the best bike in the world this week, and one of them is going to be the worst bike in the world this week. Now, you can have feelings about this, and you can leave positive or negative ratings about the show based on our best and worst bikes, because it seems that's the primary basis that people use for leaving us ratings and reviews. You know, we have 4.9 out of 5 rating on, um, oh my gosh, what's the? iTunes? No, the other one, Spotify. That's pretty good. You know, the average podcast rating is something like 4.6. Those fucking losers. Well, it's interesting. Most people do tend to leave good reviews, but even on uh, Apple Podcasts, we manage a 4.8 because it seems that people tend to agree or at least find our insights on this part of the show interesting. So if something just triggers something inside your little heart while we're talking, don't hesitate to send us feedback in the form of an email to contact at nokamotopodcast.com or just skip that entirely and go straight to the R, you know, your RSS uh, podcatcher thingamajigger of choice and leave a five-star review. Don't do the Cleveland Moto three-star thing. It fucks up numbers. <laughs> Okay, so Swigs, you have best bike in the world this week. Sure. Well, you do. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I have, I have a best no, bike. No, because you brought that mobility scooter last time. Remember? Right. Yeah. Right. That was a good one. It was. That was. That was an all timer. That was. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is. The new uh, Honda Transalp. I actually know about fuck all about this bike so far. So why don't you inform me what's going on with this thing? So essentially, this is what I would call a very faithful... Because Honda... Much like uh, Hollywood and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is very much uh, looking at reviving old franchises. They've been doing it with the Hornet. They're doing it with the Transalp. They did it with the Rebel. You know, it's it's the it's the basically the decade of reboots right now. Right, and this is a very faithful one. And a good one. So, this... It does look a lot like the old Transalp. I know a bunch of grumpy old people <laughs> are going to say differently, but, you know. You know, it does have a little bit more of the uh, kind of the more modern... It does look a little bit KTM-y and a little bit... Um, what's the Yamaha one? The 
The Tenere. The Tenere. You know, it's got that really big flat face. It's, you know, it's like this weird, we have to squash the face as much as possible and make it ridiculous. But um, what this is, is is essentially the um, a reimagining of the Transalp as a proper midsize adventure bike. And they put the new parallel twin that they put in the Hornet in it. So it's something like, where is it? Uh, I can't find the numbers, but instead of the, uh, the old one being like 60 horsepower, now it's 90 horsepower. Right. So you're essentially looking at something with the with the profile and the weight of a Tenere that has the same horsepower as the Norge or um or even kind of one of the early like second third gen gold wings and it just doesn't have all the torque but it's also just an honest to god adventure bike it's it's a real functional thing it's got the performance there, and it's not this gigantic monster. Well, and it's not going to vibrate your ass off like a like a KTM six ninety. Exactly, it's not a big ass stupid single. Yeah, it's not a monster single. It's it's a it's a it's a high. And nothing against the KTM six ninety four single. It's pretty damn smooth, but it's still a big single. And if you're looking at a 400 mile day, that's a thing. Yeah, but having the yeah yeah but ha- yeah, making the compromises. You know, it's got a little bit more weight to get more gadgets and whatnot on it. It carries a bit more fuel. It's a little bit more top heavy, but it's making reasonable compromises to be both a daily driver and a competent off road vehicle, which is what the Trans Alp was before. The Transalp was was basically what the Stelvio wanted to be and was named for. It was meant to be this right. awesome mountain bike that could go all over the place, through the mountains, jump onto the gravel roads and go off wherever you needed to go and, and just get the job done. And this is essentially doing the same thing like the old Transalp did, except that it justifiably, in the same form factor, has 30 more horsepower because it's a modern bike. Well, there's two elephants in the room with this that need to be addressed. First of all, a lot of people are going to say it's not really a Transalp because it's not a V-twin. Fuck off. No, well, I no, agree. No. Fuck off. It's still it's still a two cylinder, just because it's a parallel twin instead of a V twin. Like, oh my gosh! But some people are going to be like, listen, firing order and engine angle is extremely important to my religion, and you can go fuck off. <laughs> you know what's also but, not a V twin this year? The fucking V Strom. Okay. <laughs> Just (laughs) accept it. Unless you're going to pay out the ass, you can't have a V-twin anymore. It's, you're not, 
you're you are paying premium for two cam towers on your motor okay that's just how it is that's just how it is i agree now the other thing the other thing that needs to be addressed is i think this is very i don't know if clever is the right word i don't know if keen is the right word but um you know the africa twin and the trans alp you know at the end of 2022 here i we're we're getting real inclusive with the honda lineup right we're getting we're getting more inclusive on the you know the africa twin with the races here and trans alp it's a home run for for the marketing just to, just very slightly like hmm, these bikes are a little more progressive than the yamaha's <laughs> okay sure I, you think I? They've had thirty years to bring the Trans Alp back. It suddenly happens now. I'm just saying. Just saying. Someone has to say it out loud. I'll be that person. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. Uh. Yeah. The numbers. The weight. The the styling. That sort of. <sighs> People are good. People, I think everyone could say that there's plenty of styling cues on this bike that were all the things that they hated about the um, NC. But mm-hmm. in this package, I feel like people are just a lot more willing to accept it. Well, the fact that it can go off road helps a lot. Well, okay. I mean, again, still, I I kind of would prefer an NCX seven fifty over this. If you were never to take it off road, I think there's kind of a case to be made for that. But also, forty more horsepower is pretty sweet. It's true, but less built, less less incorporated storage. <laughs> and if I'm not leaving the asphalt, I, the sixty horsepower is fine. I will say, if I ever did get an NC750X, I one of the first things I would have to do is show up somewhere with out-of-state fast food. Right. Right out of the frunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, having done a lot of, of Iron Butt rides, my minimum horsepower for, for that is 55 uh I had no problem doing a thousand miles on the W650, but any less than that was gonna be an issue. Right? Yeah, the, the W650 was right there, but it also conveniently just ran out of horsepower right when the suspension got really sketchy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I but there are a lot of things there. The narrow tires, the 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 under um, it's not, sprung's not the right word, but um, damped uh, uh, front forks. The a lot of things with it, yeah. But for that, but that fifty five horsepower was just enough, yeah. right? And and that's why I I think I could do something on an old like thirteen hundred cc, you know, Evo Harley. Right. That's right at that like 55, 60 horsepower kind of, th- you know, that, that 55 to 60 is my minimum horsepower that I'm really looking for 
for something I'm going to actually tour on. Right. right? Yeah. And even if it's not thousand mile days, I mean, for a four or 500 mile day, you kind of want that for being on the highway. You know, I'm not, and just the, all the, the extra RPM and the buzzing and, and all that shit under your, under your ass on the high, like 55 is kind of what I need. And the NCX 750 gives you that just barely, but it gives you that. And, uh, you know, this is nice because it's that, but it's surplus to requirements. Like, can you take this off-road? Sure. Is anyone going to? No. Yeah, no, no one's... Yeah, you'd be, you'd be absolutely insane to own something like this untitled. Like, it would make mm-hmm. absolutely zero sense. But... If you are going to do the, the real, the true dual sport or true adventure bike thing, this is a great candidate. It is. Well, it's so Honda, too, to just finally, like I said, Honda always does this. It's like, oh, everyone or else if you brings basically... out a midsize adventure bike. All of a sudden, bam, here comes Honda with the one with all the best numbers, like three years after everyone else has had theirs mm-hmm. and people have gotten bored with them and whatever. Or maybe you just wanted to have this motor, but you also wanted um, OEM storage. Like, yeah. And you also thought that the Hornet looked like ass. This is what you'd go for. Yeah, for a lot of people, it's just, oh, all the numbers on the Hornet make a lot of sense. I just don't like the package it's in. But, oh, I'm more of an adventure bike guy. I think that's really cool. I like to dress up like you and McGregor. Cool. Here's the version of the Hornet I want. That's realistically how most people are going to buy this bike, which is fine. I, you know, we we trash on people all the time for buying adventure bikes that they're never going to adventure with. But I, deep down, it's fucking fine. You know, we're all out there cosplaying to some degree, right? Yeah. As much as as every other podcaster, motorcycle podcaster we know, I won't name names, but they they all. Uh, everyone accuses people of buying bikes that they don't really live up to. Okay. But I look, I had a Honda super Hawk. I couldn't ride it to 30% of its potential. It, it, it's just a wicked bike. It's just way better than you would think. And I mean, just huge torque, big horsepower, lightweight, just full on sport bike. And I, I just, there's no way I could get more than 30% of its potential out of it. That's cosplaying, right? I, okay, you buy an adventure bike, you, you only take it on some fire roads, okay? Like, you're not making, like, super impressive YouTube videos with it. That's fine, too. Okay? It, we buy bikes because they make us feel a certain way. And even if we don't live up to it, it's fine. So if this is, if this is somebody's sort of midsize adventure they just want to look a little bit more like they've got a bike they could do a little bit more with than the big gs 1200 you know fucking gigantic ocean liner of an adventure bike then it's fine i mean we all it's a little more obvious than with other people that they're cosplaying but it's fine you know i guess the nice thing about cosplaying on the harley davidson is that to live up to the bike, all you have to be is a douchebag when you get off of it. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it's fine. 
All right, should we move on to worst bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay, this is the moment we've got to decide because this is gonna which bike I I reach into my mind and pull out here because I've got several choices. Do well, we want to do a double round of best worst bike where we both do a best and both do a worst, or like what, you do two best and I do two worst, so we can keep the rotation going? Well, I only have a worst bike left, so we need to alternate. Okay. Um. All right, then I am going to pick the Bimoda. Um, Is this best or worst? Worst. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wrong button. And the worst bike in the world this week is the Bimoda. Um, oh, my God. I can't remember what it's fucking called. A little uh, out of practice there? Yeah, a little. A little it's bit. been a minute. A it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Hold on. It's the. Holy fuck. Why can't I find. Oh my gosh. I can't uh, reach into your mind. I'm sorry. I can't help you. It's the KBX. The K. Why am I not finding this? The BX450. And holy shit. Is this. A bunch of bullshit. You are going to... Have you heard of this, Swigs? Have you seen this travesty? This... Uh, mm, it just makes me... Because I love Bimoda, right? You know I love Bimoda. I need to own a Bimoda at some point, right? <sighs> so... So far, this looks like a mid-2000s dirt bike in the most generic four-stroke sense. What am I looking at? So, it's Bimoda's first dirt bike, right? So, this is already not off, not off to a great start. Now, we know a couple years ago that Kawasaki bought a controlling share in Bimoda. So... Bimoda is using all Kawasaki motors these days, which upset some people because Bimoda, being an Italian company, had really made a lot of its big name models with their DB series, which were the ones with Ducati motors. And it just felt right to everyone to have Ducati motors in Bimoda. It just felt right. Well, they also but it's made a actually lot of... more, more classic, more in line with the history of the company to have Kawasaki motors because mm -hmm. the original run of Bimoda bikes were all Kawasaki's. They were all um, Z1 motors and, um, and K1000s. There were also a lot of really great um, Yamaha ones as well. Um, those are the Yamaha ones are a challenge to love. I love them. They I are think, out there. I think I, they are some of the, basically the coolest S rads you can ever find. I mean, they're all fucking crazy. Yeah. But I mean, they're not, they're not classically pretty in the way that you might look at the DBs as like yeah, the DB one, two and three are just like, Oh, chef's kiss. Oh, oh yeah. Gorgeous. They're, they're, just, they're all essentially like boutique upmarket Ducatis. 
the the Yamahas are just all over the place. But no, yeah, I I, I guess you're right about yeah the the old ones being the Kawasaki's. So the the TA but, in Bimoda is Tamburini, and Tamburini uh, really made his name. You know it well with with Ducati and other companies and everything, but especially in Bimoda, he was making these better frames for Kawasaki's, and so you would think, okay, we've we've got a dirt bike here from Bimoda. It is a KX four fifty, right? Nothing wrong with the KX four fifty. This is a top tier, you know, supercross bike, right? And you're like, well, well, what Bimoda does is they will take an engine that someone else is making and they'll make a no compromise frame for it. It doesn't have to be as reliable. It doesn't have to, you know, do certain things that the other ones for like super mass production have to do. Right. It's like, oh, Bimoda's doing it. We can take the training wheels off because it can be super premium. It doesn't have to compete on price point and all that you stuff. You can have more handmade parts, be a little more fiddly with it. This is just the regular fucking KX450 frame. It's the regular KX450 swing arm. It is the regular KX450 forks. It is the regular KX450 rear shock it is even the regular kawasaki kx450 nissan uh disc brake it is the uh, it is it's just a fucking kx450 in an italian flag the only differences are wait so you're telling me the things that make this bike unique that would make a bimotor unique you can order on Alibaba. Well, here's the thing, though. You don't even need to because they're just here. The only things here... Well, yeah, you're talking about the, the, the body work, right? Well, I'm just so, asking... I'm just wondering, what is the markup over a KX450? So what this has that a regular KX450 doesn't have... Um, I think it comes with more expensive rubber like more expensive tires it has a lighter exhaust can and it comes with the does it come with some sweet grips like what i don't know (laughs) what else could there be here It, it the only thing that this bike does and it's it's weird to point out at first, and you have to take a look at a couple different pictures of it. But it's this bike does solve one age old enduro bike problem. It comes with a custom, like adventure enduro expanded tank that fits in properly with the bodywork. That's kind of nice. Okay. We've all gone to the track and we've seen the guy that wants to ride all day and not gas up. Your your bike is an example of this, the 250, right? The the guy that that you bought it off had put the expanded tank on, but they never really fit with the original bodywork. 
They're all kind of muffin tops. Right. And they look awkward, and they place their weight a little bit weird. Right, they don't line up with the sh- with the radiator shroud. So, yeah, Bimoda has made this bike just come with a larger tank than the Supercross KX450 would. Yeah, I mean, there is one and, kind of tank, and it, it it does. If you look now, you can see that it's an extended. It's like you know a Sahara tank, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's like a Dakar style tank. I mean, it's not that big. Well, no, but... the Dakar tank is is beautiful because you know it's a Dakar tank, and it's just like right. fuck you. I look how ridiculous I am. And it's even like kind of elegant in the fact that it's that same like white yellow plastic that all the expanded tanks are in. But this one fits in well with the bodywork. But that's not worth another five fucking thousand dollars. Because that's how much more expensive this is than a KX450, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but the 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 white, green, and red, and the gas tank, and the exhaust slip on, and the and like the Pirelli tires or whatever, are not worth that much more money. I, they're just not, especially when Bimoda is not a name in off-road motorcycles. So. This is a big swing and a miss. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to add. I, I, oh, it comes with a kickstand too, which is something that KX four fifties don't come with. But that's we're, the, it's a fifty seven dollar item. I, 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 I. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like the 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 gearing isn't any different than than the KX four fifty. The I, it's not a different sprocket. I I don't think it's the the metallurgy is any different. It's not a different disc brake. It's not a different anything. And in fact, like I I can't even see if there's really any like good hand grips on this to get it on and off of your stand. Well, I guess you don't need to since it's got a kickstand. But still, to work on it, you're going to want to put on the stand. Um, I guess it it does come with a um, uh, what you call it the 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 engine guard. Uh, what do they fucking call them? Um, uh, why am I black? Uh, skid plate. Yeah, it comes with a skid plate. Again, fifty seven dollar item. Not <laughs> not worth five thousand dollars. So yeah, I I I love me some Bimota. I really love me some Bimota, but I cannot be on board with this one. What the fuck? Oh. And see, this is how you know I'm I I'm so genuinely honest Wait, when so I come up even... with these things cuz I have never like not not since uh, this is the worst Bimota since the Vidu. Wait, what year is this? This is this year. What? Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I thought this was like some like poorly conceived like post like 2008 global recession bullshit idea. No, this is an Ikema. Fuck. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, okay. So they didn't put like a different like fuel injection system on it or anything. No, 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 like custom mapping. For, like, I don't think so. 
Oh wait, no, no, no. They do. They did say that they retook. They redid the fuel mapping. That's right. But I don't. But like, you could do that on a KX. Yeah, you could flash it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you. I. And is it really any better than Kawasaki's map? Like, I don't personally know anyone that can ride a KX four fifty to its limit. Well, if it was better than a KX four fifty, then. Kawasaki would just steal the mapping because Kawasaki wants to win races. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like the people at Biomoto were like, can you believe how those fucking retards at Kawasaki mapped this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> They're just sitting around at Biomoto and this big Kawasaki logo dartboard, like, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> yeah, I don't know. I it's yeah, it's insane. It's it's dumb. I mean, I have to say though, I it does look awesome. It it's very pretty. The Bimoda logo, the B in it, the colors, the flat when especially when you're dealing with this little bodywork, I I oh, think it's fantastic. It's great. And I, I love it so much more, the, the Kawasaki aesthetic, than like I'm kind of annoyed how the um the the Yamahas have gone for this flat line look across the bike the last couple years. This has got more of a, a late nineties, early two thousands look to the plastics on it, and I dig it. I I, I love the Italian flag. That, I mean I, I would take an Italian flag on a BMW, you know? It's just, yeah. it's just they're just great colors for motorcycles, right? They really are. Uh, but I, I can't go there on this one. I would never own this. You know what? All right. If, if they're going to do something unconventional, like even for, for Bimota, I feel like they need to get their hands on the hybrid motor setup that Kawasaki's making and then make something premium out of that. But there's no way that they could ever tune up or do anything overly creative with a four-stroke 450 dirt bike motor. That is a motor already pushed to the limits of billet aluminum. Well, so the like, weird thing about this is Bimoto wasn't trying to necessarily make a better KX450. What they were trying to make is a sexier KTM six days. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's got the headlight. That's why it's got the brake light. As tiny as it is, you can see it back there. It's got the license plate holder. It's street legal out of the box. It's got the bigger tank for all that. It's really supposed to be a little more enduro, although look at those fucking tires. Those are not street legal tires, right? But the idea is this is a little bit more KTM six days, but it's sexier because it's got that Italian thing on it. Yeah, they're they're thinking, oh, maybe we'll steal a little bit of business from these people buying fully loaded KTM enduro bikes. Like a couple people that bleed orange will go, well, here's some 
Kawasaki reliability in a, a power plant that you know, but here it is in that more, you know, because there, people don't talk about it, but there's a little bit of a club of kind of like doctors and dentists that go out and ride some of these trails on the weekends. And it's a lot like the guys that take their, you know, fucking not jet boats, but like, you know, their, their crazy speed boats to the reservoir with their jet skis and everything. And it's kind of all the gear and no idea. And, you know, just show off your toys and th- there's a lot of KTM dudes just kind of like putzing around on real, ex- you know, top of the line KTMs, not really seeing a whole lot of action. I think this was kind of meant for something like that, but this is a very small part of the market. Like, yeah. You know what this is? This has no cred. This is like, like when you look at a KX450, you're like, okay, this is cool. It's cool in the dealership. It's cool sitting on the floor. And then you just imagine now, how's it going to look with scratches all up one side and the handlebars just a little bit bent or it's like, can I tell if they're bent or not? Do I need to replace these? Are they bent? Like, did that crash bend these bikes and like covered in mud and all that? Cause it still needs to look good when it's like that. Right, it needs to look good on its third owner, and uh, this may be a more niche market than the Vespa nine four six. Yeah, like this is that. Yeah, I, I would prefer. I, I think there are people who may be more amenable to just buying two KX450s and being able to just ride one into the ground, push it into a ditch, and get onto another one instead of do the work. <laughs> like yeah. That may be a larger market than this. I mean, can you imagine a world where you would buy this instead of, like, four four-year-old kx 450s (laughs) yeah that's uh, no yeah i mean if i was making like three times as much as i am now yeah this this might fit into my yeah if if i was making brain surgeon amounts of money and like i just had so little time but i was still really into dirt biking I'd own this. Uh, maybe. I mean, I think I still think I'd I'd throw down the money on an old like YB by Moda. Yeah, like a but, YB six hundred. That's just like the S Rad on steroids. No, but you, you I mean, you've got to be a person who has to work so hard and make so much money, and has so little time to enjoy your money. That you would buy something like this. I guess so, yeah. I mean, if you're already buying, like, jet boats and shit. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on to something else. Let's... You want to talk about helmets? Uh, Can we take a quick break and then come back for helmets? All right. Let's take a quick break and then, I don't know, we might talk about helmets. We'll see. (laughs) 
Okay, and we're back. So I know helmets aren't the sexiest topic, but there's been a couple very interesting. Well, you know, because it's so out of character for us to talk about helmets. I know. Well, <laughs> actually, the last year or so, there's been very little helmet talk from us. We used to talk a lot more about helmets, but it's true. This uh, the last couple months has seen a lot of very interesting helmet news. Now, here at Nokomoto, we're famous for taking the most bland headlines possible because, well, you know, all the sexiest stuff that's out there, everyone's going to be talking about. We don't need to just cover the same fucking ground that everyone else is. But I do want to talk about some helmet stuff because, you know, reading in between the lines of what's happening on some of this stuff or just the straight headlines, it's a little bit more impactful than some people are going to realize. So I've got three different helmet stories here that I think are pretty uh, important. So just number one here. Um, I don't know what year. It might be um, next year, but we've got a new helmet manufacturer entering MotoGP. Now, this isn't a big deal. There's loads of different helmet manufacturers, lots of manner. It turns out that making a helmet that meets the safety standards of MotoGP, I think it's it's an interesting and very uh, reassuring and good fact that plenty of manufacturers can not only reach this effectively, but can almost all of those models that the MotoGP riders are wearing are available for custom for regular assholes like us to buy for very reasonable prices. Yeah. If you want Mark Marquez's helmet without the Mark Marquez paint scheme, four to six hundred dollars. Now, if you want it with the paint scheme, you're looking at seven to eight hundred dollars. But just the helmet without the the logo, four to six hundred dollars. MotoGP helmets, boom, right? Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. The, well, the the um, if you want Quadrara's helmet, it's more like two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, when um, I don't know what Marquez is wearing now, but you know, when he was wearing the uh, the Showy RF twelve hundred, I think he's just wearing like the the new version of that, which is like the 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 sixteen hundred or whatever. There's yeah. a new one, but yeah, it's but still yeah, an RF. That was like a four hundred dollar helmet, maybe a three fifty three fifty dollar helmet. And then if you wanted the Mark Marquez graphics, it was like a $500 helmet. But yeah, that's a totally attainable thing. Right. Yeah, it's... Weirdly, most of these... Yeah, most of the helmets are, you know, compared to the average, like, quality um, version of the product that is on, that's not, like, athlete-branded, like, all of these stuff, all of this stuff comes, like, way under what you would pay for, like, Jordan's. Like, they're all very, very attainable, very affordable. Right. So we've got a, a helmet manufacturer coming in, and this is Kabuda, which is a manufacturer I'm not familiar with. I don't really know anything about them. But here's what I do know. They are bringing a helmet into MotoGP uh, that presumably uh, KTM riders are going to wear. That's like the contract they've drawn up. And this is a helmet that is equipped with MIPS. For anyone that doesn't know, Swigs, bring people up to date on the MIPS concept. 
So the MIPS concept is um, at its core very simple, which is that a lot of head injuries, um, once you have adequate EPS foam and adequate an adequate hard shell on your helmet, a lot of injuries occur from hitting the ground at speed, and then it's really the twisting of the helmet will fuck up your neck or will twist your head in a way rapidly that'll cause a concussion. And MIPS is basically, in its most basic form that you can even find in bicycle helmets, is really just like a layer of like of like honeycomb rubber that just allows the helmet to twist freely from your head that will then just take some of that torque off of the initial impact and will take some of that shock away and hopefully protect you a little bit better. There are more more advanced versions of it. I know Bell, was it Bell who came up with it initially had more sophisticated versions? Well, no, MIPS is an independent company and they have a patent on the technology and then different helmet manufacturers can equip it and incorporate it into their existing helmets. Bell was the first really big manufacturer that I was aware of to really run with this, especially in their off-road helmets. And I think they first offered it in, um, what was that big helmet they did that wasn't Snell approved, but it was ECE. Um, oh, it was the helmet everyone was buying for a minute. Uh, it doesn't matter. The The point is, is that it was a new thing. It was very promising, but the science kind of wasn't all in on how effective it was, even by the time Bell was putting it in all these helmets. And as far as I knew, like two years ago, no Snell helmets were approved with MIPS because the science just wasn't in. But we're at the point now where MIPS is actually on its second generation of the technology, and it now is in Snell-approved helmets. And now well, say it's even going to GP. And as far as safety goes, GP doesn't fuck around. This is, to me, the story here is that MIPS is in being sort of endorsed by GP here in a way. Well, I think MIPS also was was a little bit unfortunately timed. Well, I mean, for one thing, Snell just takes forever between their iterations, and they focus really heavily on Im- on like single impacts as well. Yeah. Whereas, um, and I think it also arrived just after a big like major revision of ECE as well. Yeah, 2015 and 2016 were big years for helmet. Uh, standard revisions yeah so i think it's really just and you know and and first it has and in order for it to get a gp you know fim doesn't know fuck all about helmets but they rely on snell and they rely on ece who are the two big standards that really do it they wait on the technology then the standard comes then fim picks up the standard so it it's now finally all syncing together right so basically if you were sort of like, well, MIPS sounds cool, but is it worth it? Should I buy something that has a MIPS sticker on it and sort of put faith in that? Because let's face it, when we all go to buy a new helmet, we think about three things. We think about well, four things. We think about how cool the helmet looks. Does it kind of match our bike and our style and everything? What is the price point? 
and we think about most of us, I think this point, think about what safety standards, you know, what stickers does it have that says it meets this and that and whatever. And, you know, then we think about features as well. And, you know, MIPS has been like one of those features. And, you know, when it comes to like those last two things, the features and the safety standards, uh, there's a little bit of like leaps of faith there. You're like, well, historically, these different stickers mean these different things, but you don't know exactly what tests those helmets were put through. But, you know, you're kind of led down a road one way or another with these different standards. And a little bit, there's a little leap of faith with some of it. You're like, well, I'm, I'm going to buy a Snell helmet because I know it meets a certain thing. And if I'm in a certain kind of crash, it will do a certain thing at least. Whereas we know DOT means nothing. So the... The, the 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 story for me here is that MIPS is in its second generation. It's been endorsed, and it's in the top level of motorcycle racing now. And uh, I think it's a compelling sticker. It means something when it's on the side of a helmet now. Yeah. This was kind of the moment we were waiting for with this technology. This is kind of the proving. Hey, it's in GP, you know. Guys with 300 horsepower breaking 200 miles an hour are trusting this shit. Maybe it's something to to factor in. If you're in between two helmets and one has the sticker and one doesn't, yeah. there's, it, there's, it carries some weight now. There, and it yeah. should impact it should have some impact on your buying decision. Yeah, there's there's a proof of stake. Right. So you were just saying like the FIM doesn't know anything about safety standards. Well, do I have an article for you, Swigs? Okay. <laughs> I have an article here called New FIM Helmet Safety Standard. This is from uh, Cycle World, who I usually just ignore flat out right almost all the time. But uh, this, this was released just a couple of days ago. So the FIM has always had, you know, its, its um, own standards. But it's it, historically, I think it's been uh, they just endorse someone else's standards. Like it must be like ECE and Snell or it must be whatever, whatever, whatever. But I wasn't aware of this. Apparently they have currently their own standards. So right here, um, there's, there's all these different standards that they're listing here. But now it's thrown its own hat into the ring, and there's the FRHPHE-01 regulations. <laughs> and they're going in 2026 to move to the FRHPHE-02 rules. And I did the reading here because, you know, you don't give a shit. Not you, Swigs, but the, the listeners don't give a shit. There's a couple things here that are very interesting. They haven't really invented their own standard, what they have come up with is more rigorous testing to back up the Snell and ECE standards. So they take these helmets that have already passed certain tests and subject them to a lot more impact points, which are chosen at random. And then they also have their own internal standard of how easy the cheek pads are to remove and replace. 
which I guess is some guy just saying like, okay, this reasonably works or this reasonably doesn't work. But some common sense person goes, okay, this like cheek pad removal system is good. This one is garbage. So I was just, I just glanced over the article and I just read this sentence. As with standard compliant helmets will be identified by a label sewn into the chin strap containing a QR code linking its homologation certification and allowing the helmets to be individually tracked at events they compete in. So part of this standard apparently is entirely built in mind that helmets will be uniquely identified and have the current standard that they meet built into a QR code, which means they're really, really thinking about safety marshals and having it all be verified by people who are working on four hours of sleep, which is great. A great idea. It is weird to have the fact that you would have a QR code built into your safety standard, but I guess since it's for the track, it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, we anyone that's had a helmet for more than three years has gone through that adventure of taking it apart and putting it back together again. And I, some, I believe there are people out there riding helmets that have incredibly high safety standards that are just straight dangerous because they haven't put the helmet back together correctly. Yeah, that's, that's probably fair. So the, I like this idea that they are coming up with their own like sort of evaluation of how the, the cheek pads remove and everything. Uh, oh, well, not to mention the fact that it does need to be intuitive for the first responders on the scene. I mean, they all pretty much just use the little red straps that say pull here underneath. So it's the removal. But I think they're also talking about the replacement here because, you know, helmets need some sort of maintenance and racers just sweat at like nobody's fucking business in their helmets. And they're probably washing them a lot more often than we are at home. But this is actually pretty, this is actually really, really uh, smart. Because when you think about it, the helmet's going to be, well, first of all, the rider's going to handle the helmet and they may put it away at the track or they may stow it. They may be the one that packs it up when they travel from event to event. They're going to have it inspected by somebody on the team and see if they need to replace it or not. It goes to the um it goes to some it goes back to the vendor usually to go put the um the the tearaways on like between sessions yeah it gets handed off oh, to you and i have seen this happen at at, at races yeah yeah this yeah and then you know if if you're in an accident then a safety marshal has to pull the cheek pads off or a doctor does so even though you know it's it may be your helmet and you may be used to only you ever handling your helmet there's probably 10 or 12 different people who will touch a rider's helmet during its lifespan. And very quickly, it'll be replaced by another helmet that will go through those same 10 to 12 hands. 
Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to standardize it so that somebody doesn't fuck up something really, really dumb that compromises the safety of it. This is a great idea. Well, it's not if the they're really vague on how they talk about like the cheek pad removal things, but it it does hint that they they at least need some sort of vetting that the system's not idiotic. Cuz you know, like uh Claire uh bought an Arai helmet because she went into the dealership and she just said like I just want your most expensive helmet because I care about safety. And I was like, ah, you could have spent half the money and gotten the same amount of safety. But she's got a really nice helmet. It's really comfortable, and she really loves it. But Arai makes some funky systems, like when it comes to replacing the visor and the cheek pads and everything. And, you know, I'm a Shoei guy. And before that, I was a... Um, what, what's the brand that we both rode with before Shoei? Scorpion. Um, Scorpion. Uh, Scorpion, I still believe, is probably the best entry-level helmet. And uh, I'm just Shoei through and through. These days, they just fit me really well. I just love the range. The They have the features I'm looking for. I'm into it. Um, but Claire got this awry, and I, I it's a great helmet. It's really comfortable. It's really quiet. It's 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 all kinds of wonderful things, but it is a bitch to take apart and put back together. It is super the Arai system for swapping your visor is infuriating. I I'll tell you what, I will I will handle an obnoxious process to swap a visor. If somebody could invent the technology to not spend 15 minutes trying to line up the plastic snap behind a cheek pad so that you don't yeah like just spend half your day guessing over and over and over again until you finally get it that may be the most infuriating thing about putting a helmet back together and it makes me dread putting a um, putting a Bluetooth system oh, yeah. into the helmet. The worst part of putting a Bluetooth system into the helmet is not installing the Bluetooth system. It's literally just putting the cheek pad back in the helmet once you've routed the microphone. Oh, it's it's the worst. Well, and yeah, we all have ridden with a helmet like six months past the point it started to smell. Because we just dread taking it apart and putting it back together again. Yeah. We've all done it. Like we've all been like, I really should run this through the fucking like dishwasher or the washing machine or whatever the fuck. Or just just take it apart and let it air the fuck out. Whatever you want to do. But we've all pushed it to the point where it's like, all right, this helmet fucking reeks. I cannot go another day. I have to wash it. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah, and if there's a bunch of wires behind all those cheek pads, God help you. Exactly. Yeah, because now you've got to get that little, that like, le- it's like a, it's like a little three sixteen inch, like three sixteen inch, um, plastic snap button that you cannot look yeah. at as you're pressing it in because you've got this giant cheek pad in the way. So you've got to, you've just got to look at it. You got to look at the pad. And you just got to kind of like index and guess and you press it and you're just so hopeful every time. And you just do it over and over 
and over again until the ultimate example of this was when we the the last time we were down at MotoGP and I lost my my Senna unit. Oh yeah, it just like came off my helmet while I was walking around the parking lot with it. So we went in on the thirty k units together. Mm-hmm. We we went to the 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 cycle gear tent and we got like you know the MotoGP discount and what we actually got a pretty good deal on two of them. It was like a hundred yeah. and like it was like a hundred ninety bucks for two thirty ks. It was like oh shit okay this is the way to do it. it would have been awesome. If I didn't lose. The thirty k like, I know right? it was so it was so brutal, uh, but um, the the crazy the really crazy part was uh, we were in a campsite and it was like okay we have to replace the whole Bluetooth system for these two helmets and like we didn't have a table we just had like a and and it was I just went like swigs like like I'm about to get sunstroke. Yesterday we like lived, we camped through like a hurricane. Basically, I just handed you the helmet in the boxes, and I was like, "I just need you to work your magic and just hook up both these helmets." I'm just, I'm not up to the task, and I just admitted it. And then you <laughs> spent like two and a half hours just quietly in your tent doing both of our helmets, which were like identical helmets. And just going through it and just putting them together, and it it, 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 you have you at this point have installed like multiple brands of Bluetooth systems in multiple brands of helmets, and it still took you hours. Okay, here's one thing I will say: Shoei, Arai, Scorpion, everyone, if you are listening. On all of your helmets, your cheek pads have a sleeve that goes between the EPS foam and the plastic outer shell. In order to get any uh, system to any um, head, uh, any Bluetooth system to to set up to get to the outside unit and get the headphones and the microphone in, you have to feed the wires and fold them over that sleeve that pokes up. And it's no joke, like a 15 minute job just to massage and warp the wires and the plastic and just push it in to get it to click and engage and just force it in. Can you please all just put like a three millimeter slot halfway through the left cheek pad that you can just feed those wires through and not have to deal with this. Oh, I have thought about taking a super thin diamond file to the side of my helmet, but I'm so afraid to like, you know, like compromise the integrity of the helmet. If they could like design the helmet and test it with that slot in there would be so helpful. Well, no, no, not through the hard plastic, just through the sleeve that goes up on the inner lining sleeve. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the sleeve on the cheek pad that like li- that clicks in to the helmet, like that. Just just put a slot in there that three wires can go through. Like, please, please, please. 
it's not like they're strangers to this idea that people like to retrofit their helmets with gadgets. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we, we, we've got to move on from this because yeah. believe it or not, Swigs, I have, I have a third uh, <laughs> helmet article for you. And I think this is the one that's going to be the sexiest to the listeners. So we did not attend Ikema because you know what? Ah, they offered to fly us out. And I was like, you know what? Fuck off. So, um, but you know, there, there are a couple little small things that didn't get a huge amount of press at Ikema. And I think this is a big one. So there's a helmet company called Aero, A-I-R-O-H. And this is an airbag helmet. Now, this is a this is I'm gonna call this 15% vaporware. Because I as far as I can tell, this is a helmet that you can purchase, but it is not currently um like DOT or anything approved. Because the whole basis on which it operates is completely different. And there is no system for rating its safety right now. So the entire crown of the helmet has an airbag built into it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so traditional impact testing isn't going to work for this. You know, this would absolutely not have saved Jalamasia from Kaito Toba's punch. It would have made it better, though. <laughs> if he'd punched him hard enough, it sure as shit would have made it better. Uh, so, yeah. So, the whole crown has these uh, breakaway plates. And there's a great big airbag built into the top of it. Now, the history of automotive safety has told us that for impacts airbags are a very good, useful, and effective tool for impact protection. So I have no reason to doubt this, but this company claims that this helmet does stand up to all of the impact scenarios that Snell, FIM now, you know, and uh, ECE and JIS helmets are subjected to. Like, it would hold up to all those safety scenarios. But you can't put it in a machine and just, like, you know, blast air pressure, like, bricks at it and just see how it holds up because it just deploys an airbag. Well, this is also kind of a, a, a problem because, especially with the testing, because I'm guessing... This is using the same sort of Alpine Star slash Dionysi style AI crash detection to go off, doesn't it? That I don't know. I don't know if it's just triggered by, like, what? I don't know. Well, it it has to be because airbag, the whole reason the airbag on your car works is because when the front of your car hits something, the delay, the 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 time between the front of the car hitting something and you slamming into your steering wheel is a big enough gap that you can inflate the airbag. Right. And the whole reason that Alpine Stars and Dionysi can do their airbag vests is because they have these sophisticated systems 
that can detect when you are crashing. And when you're crashing, they can inflate the airbag before you hit the ground. Oh, the airbag inflation is one third of a blink of an eye. For, well, the, yes. for the mechanically operated vest that we own, it's that fast. It is. But if that one third of a blink of an eye is when the shell of your helmet is already touching the tarmac, it doesn't help you. You have to be, you have to actually have the distance before the airbag can make the time and distance happen to save you. So that's true. It, you're right. You're well, you're right. Yeah. It's going to have to be, it's going to have to ha- be battery operated in some way. You're right. It's going to have to have an IMU in it because otherwise you would just have to have a, a, a tether to the back of your head. Right. So the question is, is how does that system work? And now I mean, you got to think like, can you imagine you're riding your your airbag? It's just an IMU, and if your helmet moves just faster than it than is reasonably you know possible from your own motion, then boom, it goes off. You know, I now really want to see a motorcycle stunt rider crash a airbag equipped Goldwing whilst wearing an airbag equipped vest. And an airbag <laughs> helmet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so here's the thing. So a lot of people look at this helmet and their first thought is, well, this looks crazy expensive. Helmets are already expensive. Boom. The airbag goes off. And then, like, I'm out like a $1,000 helmet. But if you look at the panels on this, it looks like it can get repacked. And as I we don't know. know, when um, you're dealing with a helmet that that relies on foam, you've got like a five-year lifespan on this helmet, and then the foam just degrades, and you've got to replace it. So if you really keep this helmet for 10, 15 years, and, and every time you have a crash, instead of having to completely replace your entire helmet, you just have the helmet repacked, this could potentially not be any more expensive than a regular helmet. I don't know. I'd have to look into this because it feels like you'd almost need... Yeah, there's more questions than answers here, but this is a really good design, you have to admit, for an airbag helmet. It's interesting. Um, Well, so it's got these plates on the outside, but it kind of... I, I would really have to look in to see how it's meant to work because those plates kind of look like... um, They just look plastic to me. The whole thing is that by the time you need it, the airbag's gone off underneath. Well, no, I think I would imagine the point of those panels is to move out with the airbag and provide piercing protection to the airbag. It's probably double. It needs to look like a normal helmet when you're riding around, and then the airbag needs to expand, so the plates kind of flip out like that. And then, again, they don't completely detach to, like you said, provide piercing protection because there could be twisted car metal and shit involved. But also, um, well, no, they need, I they think need they to... provide the possibility of repack as well. Uh, well, who knows? Maybe. 
It does also mean that you have to have a, like a compressed gas canister near your head the whole time as well. If you see some pictures of this, you can see where that's built into kind of the spine of the the helmet. There's this ridge across the top that clearly holds a CO2 canister. Mm-hmm. Okay. But nicely, it holds it in a place that I wouldn't be all that like disturbed to have it. Like if it was like near my brain stem, I'd be a little more worried. But like where it is here, I'm like, yeah, sure, hit that with a hammer and have the thing go off. It that's not going to hurt me. Yeah, um, it's interesting. But again, um, the the other aspect of it is that, and the point that I was originally trying to make is, um, if it's set off by by an IMU then you do kind of run into some problems you if have to make sure it's charged and shit well and no no but no besides the the general practicalities of keeping a battery charged and having to go make sure the canister's good every couple years or so is that something like this will not help you in the scenario of say a brick coming off the back of a construction vehicle or a ladder coming off and just coming up and smacking you in the face while you're riding. Like if a brick falls off the back of a, of a truck bounces up and hits you right on the crown, the airbag system is not going to go off. And if the base protection of the helmet is compromised because it's relying on the airbag deploying, then you're fucked. So this company does also have a sort of uh, like tank bag airbag. That's kind of like the, the gold wing airbag that you can like slap onto any bike. And they also make a airbag vest. So this is why I said this is like 15% vaporware. I, they are claiming that they have run the tests and they're putting this product out to the public and they have multiple products along this line of safety. And part of me is inclined, I, I not inclined to believe, but it would not be far fetched to believe that they have more data research on how effective this is than anybody else. There's mm-hmm. just not a lot of bodies out there looking into how effective this is versus other forms of impact protection on motorcycles. So there's a little bit of a leap of faith if you're going to buy it right now. But it's not to be discounted. Well, they may have the most research, but at the same time, the Scientologists have the most research on dynamics. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't is, know no, that absolutely, this is, absolutely I don't know that this but is But you and I both know that a lot of people write off motorcycle airbag vests but uh, they're absolutely worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean I would I would I would it sounds interesting. I don't know if I would prefer it over just having the right, most yeah. solid Part of it is standard like yeah, helmet. motorcycle helmets aren't broken. Yeah. They, you know, they work very well in MotoGP. Sure, I'm just saying this is interesting, and I think it's it's worth the industry's attention. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and it is by far because I've seen other like airbag things that you know immobilize your neck and other stuff, whatever. This is the best helmet airbag I've seen. 
like by far. And the fact that it's already in a form that consumers can already buy goes a long way in 2022. Yeah. I, I, the I, I'll the fact that it's not here. just like, hey, here's a thing we're thinking about making. Yeah, yeah. The fact I, that I they've agree. got the balls that they're already selling it, that says a lot to me. I don't know. It's just what... All right. Yeah. Should we, uh, I've still got like a shit ton more news articles and things. Should we, how about we do just one more, uh, not like, not the whole second round of best worst bike, but like you just do your worst and then we'll do some more news and then I'll do my, my best and then we'll do some more news or whatever. Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. What, uh, so you've got a worst now, right? I do. Or I can go first this time. We could swap it up. What do you think? Uh, I need to pull my bike up real quick. If you want to go first. Here, I'll just do a best. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So in your special double round of best first bike in the world this week, the other best bike in the world this week is the Honda 2023 CMX 1100T. So, I could have made an argument of this being worst bike in the world this week um, because people hate this. People just cannot fucking stand um, this motorcycle. This is... Uh, how do you even, like... How do you even describe what people hate about this. Um, so this is the rebel 1100 touring is what this bike is. Okay. And it is, some people would say not a looker and that's okay. That's totally okay. Hold on. Let me find a good version of, the oh my goodness oh my goodness here we go let's just go at it from the honda page i am doing really shitty with my hosting and i don't normally work the laptop for for me and swigs here all right here we go oh my gosh fucking cast i we need to get rid of of this fucking system for this all right so here we go so the Honda Rebel 1100, right? A motorcycle that was met with a little bit of mixed opinion to begin with. People were like, well, the, the Rebel 300 and Rebel 500, we had a lot of opinions on whether it was good or bad, whether the 300 was brilliant or dog shit. If you just needed to go for the 500 straight away, what was the value proposition? And then Claire finally bought a Rebel 300 and we were like, it doesn't matter. The 300, the 500, whatever. They're actually both awesome. It is a really approachable, high-end, like very good quality for entry level, extremely easy to ride motorcycle. Very forgiving. Very forgiving. And it's basically just the the sounding of the death, the 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 death of for the um the Harley Sportster. 
right? That they will never sell another Harley Sportster because of the Honda Rebels. Um, it's just fact, okay? Old grumpy people want to say, oh, no, you could never replace the Harley Sportster. But guess what? You're old and you're out of touch. You have no idea what the fuck is going on. And that's fine. You could have no idea what the fuck is going on because guess what? You're over 60. You're not going to buy a Sportster or a Rebel anyway. It doesn't matter. It's not yeah. for you. So this, I think, is a really brilliant motorcycle, even though all established riders instinctually hate it. And they hate it because it forces you to ask yourself a question. In order for a motorcycle to be good, does it have to be right for you? That's a good... Uh, okay, I see where you're going with this. So, here's the thing about this motorcycle. This is the the Africa Twin motor, essentially. You know, maybe it's tuned for the mid-range, and, you know, certain people are going to think that that's lame. Cleveland <laughs> moto. But the, 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 at the end of the day, this is a over one liter, twin cylinder, very peppy motorcycle in what old people hate, but younger people think is a cool cruiser styling. And it has something, this has a couple things that make it a one of the most, believe it or not, distinct motorcycles on the market today. Do you know what those are, Swigs? Do you have any guesses at that? The most distinct are these besides the the Honda fancy features like dual clutch that is incorporated is it the fact that it's a cruiser that has actual fuel capacity it's actually not it's only 3.6 gallons even in its touring form oh okay i mean that's still pretty big for it's about 36 miles per gallon, so we're looking at about like 140 miles range total. Oh, it's actually kind of short. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I'll, I take it back then. Um, let's use unique. Uh, I don't know. Tell me. This is what I'm going to call a large capacity cruiser because it's over one liter. With, uh, actually, no, no, I, I got to start with the most distinctive feature about it. This model with the fairing, with the bags, is only available as dual clutch. Oh, interesting. The the bagger version of the Rebel Eleven Hundred you cannot get manual. It is only dual clutch that's actually kind of cool and the 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 sort of harley-esque batwing fairing that's on the front there and the 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 top open bags and all this stuff it's a very specific blend of things to, because you know Harley was uh, sorry Honda was like well let's see how this Rebel three you know this Rebel thing goes 
And as you and I know, it's a big hit. They sell them like fucking crazy. You walk into a Har- a, a Honda dealership, they will have Rebels, but guess what? You're not going to be able to choose the color. You you may only have a choice of a 300 or a 500 because they sell like fucking hotcakes. So the 1100 is sort of the thing to graduate up to. Now, the dual clutch is easy to operate, is become a lot more intuitive, is become a lot less stressful to ride. But you know what I've discovered uh, getting Claire through this whole motorcycle adventure? You know, one of the reasons she loves the shit out of her Vespa and and all this and what she keeps saying about her 300. She wishes there was a vetter she could put on her 300. Women fucking love motorcycle wind protection, right? But you and I know we love it. There's a bunch of Harley guys that know it's great, but... The, you know, for the for, people have been over romanticizing this whole like wind in your hair, wind on your chest, like sort of thing. But like, it's okay to admit that you want to ride a motorcycle and you don't need to have yourself just blasted in the fucking elements nonstop. Okay. So Honda went, okay, what's the next step yeah, I feel in like making that, a very approachable motorcycle? Oh shit. How about we give it wind protection? I do feel like the romanticism died when speed limits went from 55 miles an hour all the way up to 85 miles an hour. I, yeah, I, <laughs> but this has, this has effective wind protection. If you look at that fairing, that is getting wind off of your hands. Like, is it a tall windshield? No, but it's directing air up and you can always, I'm sure you can aftermarket retrofit that with a taller windscreen on top of the fairing there, right? Well, even then, we know, we both know that that does quite a bit at a high speed. That does quite a bit, even at your at head level. Mm-hmm. A little short yeah. fairing like that. It absolutely will. Now, this bike has been getting blasted in the press and by blasted, it means not a bad review because as far as the motorcycle press goes, you can't like, do a bad review. The the paid You're motorcycle press has become like 10 times worse the pussies that they used to be. I in the 90s you could actually read bad reviews. In at the uh, in the turn of the century, they were rarer. Uh they were virtually unheard of in like the the last you know 10 years and now they're they might as well be illegal that they it's just oh you're you're a website with notoriety oh uh, guess what i you don't sell magazines anymore they don't sit around in dealerships they do you people watch youtube videos and listen to podcasts fuck you if you give us a bad review you're just never getting another fucking press bike Hey, man, you know, interest rates are up. We got to see returns within the financial quarter. So what people keep saying about this bike, what journalists keep saying about this bike is, well, there's nothing wrong with the power. We're not wild about the styling. But if you're close to six feet tall, this bike's kind of cramped. So it's not great. They're like, you can't move the foot pegs. 
First of all, I don't believe that. There's, a, I'm sure you can somehow. Okay. Does that just mean the this foot is peg? a dual clutch only bike? I'm sure we could fucking move the foot pegs somehow. Well, this uh, is also a bike that shares a frame with like four other models. Right. Somebody's going to make aftermarket foot pegs. Something. Exactly. And since it's dual clutch only and it has a linked braking system, I'm sure we can fucking like put some highway pegs on it or something. But they're like, oh, my buddy's 6'2", and and I'm 6'11", and blah, 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 blah. And the seat height's only like 27.3 inches or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, fuck off. The whole industry was asking for lower seat height bikes for the longest fucking time. When all the seat heights were like 28 to 32 inches, they're like, well, it's a bit tall for such shorter riders are going to go. Then Honda gives them the low seat height bike they want. They're like, if you're like 6'5", like 87% of all humanity is apparently. It's not, fuck off. The bike doesn't have to be the perfect bike for you to be an excellent bike, okay? It just so happens that Honda decided to make a bike that is approachable for new-ish riders that has respectable power that is for people of shorter stature, and they dared to make a bagger version of it. If it's not for you, fuck off. Guess what? Heritage soft tails still exist, motherfucker. Well, also, you know, I don't know why nobody else has thought of this yet, but, you know, you can't lower the seat height on an existing model bike if the airbox or the fuel tank is under the seat. Right. But you can increase the seat height. Exactly. Yes, you can get thicker seats for this. You can get seats that are two inches taller and replace it and all kinds of shit. Increasing seat height is way easier than lowering. I We all know, people, like, you know, it was a big thing when, you know, sport bikes and tall seats and everything, people were putting lowering links and, and, and shorter shocks and stuff on sport bikes. And there was a big compromise that came with that, that like, yes, the spring is stiffer, but you have less travel. Just and you're gonna have to deal with that as a shorter rider. And so everyone was like, why can't we have like shorter seat heights and blah blah blah? blah. Here's the fucking shorter seat height bike, and you're still gonna bitch about it. Because guess what? You're a moto journalist that cannot be fucking pleased. I do feel like um a lot of these bikes, especially for a cruiser where it doesn't really matter, it doesn't really change the experience all that much if you raise the seat height an inch or two. And you can always swap out the bars at the same time. I feel like they should make these bikes essentially for somebody with the with like a 27 inch inseam or a 26 inch inseam, and then just sell two subframes. So I, so so like no, you don't even need to because guess what? I've ridden. We've both ridden the 300cc single version of this bike. And it's not that cramped. I mean, it's fine. I wouldn't want to do an iron butt on it. But yeah, like... Is it really any worse in terms of like having your knees tucked in than a 600 Supersport? 
I don't think it's any more cramped than a 600 Super Sport. You're sitting straight yeah. up instead of leaning forward, but your knees are at the same angle to your body. I don't know. If you're talking about like the 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 compromised ninja, I would say no. If you're talking about like a Ducati SS800, it's a lot better. But uh, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's radically different than a than a sport bike. It's just you're sitting straight up instead of leaning forward. I I I could ride the. Th- I'm I am I'm like half an inch under six foot, and I can ride this bike. It's fucking fine. Uh, mm. But but because some people are like, oh, you can't really just fucking man spread on it, right? They 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 give negative reviews or the wink wink like hey it's probably not for you bud like riding this thing might make you gay cuz you can't like fucking really lay out you know it's not brotherhood approved or whatever the fuck it but i think it's a brilliant bike i i think just again you know it's weird to see people shitting on things like this when the biggest trend i picked up the biggest, most clickbaity thing I picked up for Micama this year was everyone fucking jizzing their pants off of like Chinese knockoffs of Harleys. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I thought the big well, hmm. I don't know. Should we should we uh, hit 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 pause for a second and just call this good on our. Uh, on our uh on this segment we'll we'll hit it we'll take a break this may be our most we'll do negative. another icam a news story and then well actually okay let me let me give this like two more minutes before we take a break we should um, say we should be because i talked on. about why a lot of people hated this bike unjustly i haven't talked enough about why it is just so good we should remember this is a best bike in the world. We this should is be a, best a little bike bit in the world. more right. positive so about the 2023 level of rebel 1100t is a 90 horsepower bike yep. with, I can't remember what the torque is, but it's decent. It is a cruiser. It is a bagger with wind protection. Like it has, it ha- and it is under $12,000. This is a bagger under $12,000 with high tech features like dual clutch, a, fairly decent instrument cluster as as uh, minimalized as it is you know you've got your fuel gauges and you got your things do you have an infotainment system no which but is, you don't fucking need one okay? which i think is a positive this because... has top opening bags which i can't remember how many liters but they're surprisingly large for a honda rebel you've got a full like batwing fairing for it and it's honda so it's all Honda line stuff, and you know there's going to be aftermarket stuff to add on to it. You have color options. You have modern styling. And I, what the fuck more do you need? I, how can you complain about a sub $12,000 modern bagger that not only does it hit all these amazing numbers... It's so targeted in its marketing 
that it is guaranteed to increase the number of riders. Yes. What other bike on the market is doing this? Um, I don't know. I mean, I can think about bikes, like standard bikes that are doing this. I can talk about, you know, like any of those bikes using the KTM 390 motor or like the GS310, you know, those, those little like, 400 cc singles or or twins or whatever standard bikes is loads of those but in the cruiser market is anything doing this i don't think so this stands alone and just because it's not for you because oh, i've ridden about sixty thousand million miles in my day and i really need something more substantial than this well you can go fuck off but for like normal humans that have just been riding for a couple years, this is a pretty fucking attractive option. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not one of these elitists. Guess what? $30,000 and 30 miles does make you a biker. Cause guess what? You've invested. Okay. How much you're going to ride after that is up to you, but you've joined the market. You've put your money down and you've bought the gear and you're you're going to cruise up and down your street at least, and you're going to talk to your friends about it, and you're going to be part of the excitement. I, you know I what? Mean, you are a biker at $30,000 and 30 miles. And, you know, really from the business perspective, like, and the first, the first impressions perspective, like, this makes so much sense. If you have, if you, if you're, like, if, if, if you're a woman and you've come in, and maybe you know, and you're like five 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 four, and you want to get in, and you know, maybe your boyfriend, your husband, or whoever, whoever you're riding with is riding these taller bikes. You come in, you go, you do the MSF course, and you're doing it on these two fifties or you know five hundreds for the Harleys. You go through, you get your license. And then you go and you do some test rides. You maybe try a few different bikes and then you try the, uh, you try this bike. It's your first bike over one liter. It's a big, heavy bike, but the weight is way low down. You can flat foot it. Whenever you're idling around the parking lot or pulling out as you're doing the test ride, the dual clutch is doing all the work for you. You're not going to stall it. The weight's super low down so you can balance it and manipulate it. And you get off the line and it's the most power you've ever felt on a motorcycle before. You get to pull away on the highway, get up to speed. It's nice and quiet and you feel in control. That's an amazing experience yeah. to go from getting your license. Like that's, that's a big thing. Yeah. I, I you know, it, yeah. And it's in sharp contrast as I ride more and more, I keep finding myself buying motorcycles that are like worse and worse handling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, well, you, you admitted that riding my Goldwing is 
it, it's surprisingly smooth for 1978. The weight is surprisingly low down. There's all sorts of things about it, but at the end of the day, it's a bike from 1978 with 1978 tire profiles with 1978 suspension, and it's fucking squirrely once you get above 78 miles an hour. And <laughs> well, I mean, and yeah. it kind of takes you back to some of your first rides every once in a while. It does remind you how much flex aluminum has. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah. if you put it in the context of 1978, it's still this huge technological achievement, yeah. but it's still from 1978. And well, I mean, I'm I, so I keep like chasing this thing of like visceral experience with these like squirrely bikes, but that's not what everyone's in it for. Some people just need to feel a solid thing with some power and some stiffness, but be like, Hey, I'm here. And then just enjoy the riding for the riding. They don't need to be wrestling with the machine or whatever. Like we're all, we all come at this from different aspects. I mean, at this point I need chaos, right? Which is why I bought a bike with GP shift with neutral at the top. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's why I love I love like the fucking Lambretta and bombing that Vespa around. Like they're they're just yeah. fucking sketchy in a way. <laughs> um. So yeah, I I think we laid down the case for why this is brilliant. I I think this is doing like something it. very different than any other bike on the market is doing. Very, and it's all outlined right there in that DCT only. I mean, if they made a version of this that was you know, maybe six inches longer wheelbase that was in regular transmission, I would personally be a little bit tempted. In this form, am I tempted? No. But I don't need to be tempted to recognize how good it is. Exactly. So there we yeah. go. Here, let's let's put a break because I, I got to go to the bathroom and then we'll come back in a moment with another news story. And we're back, so... If we're talking about recent motorcycle news, and if we're going to say anything that has to do with Ikema news, apparently we're legally obligated to talk about the Kawasaki hybrid motorcycles, or motorcycle, or whatever. I personally am not impressed, and I'm a little nonplussed, and I'm, and I'm a little bored by this talk. Everybody to some degree at ICOMA this year was trying to talk about how their company is going to be a little bit greener, except for Honda. Honda has the balls to not be green, but <laughs> um, everybody else had to mention to the point that Brembo was talking about a new green brake pad. And the only way that it's green is that it lasts longer. So therefore, it has less carbon footprint because you need to replace your brakes only like 80% as often as you did before. It's it's not a meaningful it's just a it's just a more durable brake pad. Do you know how you could tell me that you are a green motorcycle company? All you had to tell me is that you will no longer purchase any asbestos brakes drum brakes from india right like there you've already won right <laughs> <laughs> that's all you had to do yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it is ridiculous you could just how say, many like you could still just say asbestos brake pads there are in the third world. It's fucking crazy. You could just say, hey, you know what? We're just not there is no motor that we make anymore today that benefit that benefits or requires lead in the gasoline. Like yeah. big win. That's all you had to do. I mean, this is what you need to know. This was revealed as part of the Go With Green Power Initiative. It's not a real thing. It's it's a vaporware slogan. Their Green Power Initiative. Doesn't Somebody equate got... into anything that has to do with anything in the real world. Somebody got paid for that copy. I know it's so lazy, Ugh. Ugh. I bet you that the person that wrote that couldn't tell you why Kawasaki uses green as its signature color. There's a good chance. Fuck, it's been like 15 episodes since I've said it. I'll just remind people. Kawasaki uses green because green was an unlucky color in racing. It was presumptive and whatever. Kawasaki was one of basically kind of the last of the big four Japanese manufacturers to get hardcore into racing. So they joined the game late and they decided they were going to make a big splash by painting their bikes, the unlucky color to say, our bikes are so good. We can paint them green. It's so anime. It's awesome. It's an (laughs) awesome reason. It's so cool. Uh, I used to be able to know like how many parts yellow and how many parts blue made the Kawasaki green. I can't remember anymore, but you can find it. Uh, but it's just a straight up mixture of yellow and blue, and boom, you get this Kawasaki green. It's like four yellow, six blue, or something like it's some like mixture. But um, yeah, Kawasaki green is a very distinct green, and it is that green for a very distinct reason. It has nothing to do with the fucking ecosystem. Okay, it's way cooler than that. But apparently now being Kawasaki is all about being green. All right, because they don't have any motorcycle models in the past that have trans in the title. Does going green? I've never I'm now curious. I'd be more impressed if they went clear. But (laughs) no, I'm just wondering, like in Japanese, if you directly translate like going green in terms of being like environmentally friendly does that meaning translate across i don't know does anybody does any japanese person at kawasaki associate green with being environmentally friendly other than from the western context it's probably just in the western context yeah i don't know it's be interesting to know. Yeah, Kawasaki's not selling electric versions of the Ninja in 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 Southeast Asia. They don't give a shit about that. They'll do they'll do that with scooters that actually make sense. Yeah, yeah. So so anyway, so Kawasaki has this hybrid, and really the new story is that there isn't a new story. Okay. Give me like $8,000 and three weeks and I'll build you a hybrid motorcycle. It may not be great, but it'll technically be a hybrid motorcycle. 
okay? I, I can work the software and we can throttle power on and off from two different motors. Like, it's not that fucking crazy to do, okay? Uh, I mean, to, ma- to make it not feel like shit is kind of hard. Who knows that this doesn't feel like shit? Has anybody ridden one? No. Does it ha- Do they claim any practical a- application for it? Or any meaningful gains in fuel efficiency or performance or convenience or price or anything that makes it better than a than a gas bike or an electric scooter or a, are there any claims whatsoever that this has any advantage to anybody? For any reason, or is it just their green initiative? I mean, they've been working on it for a while, and they've been teasing it for a while, and I think it is important to them. And yeah, for a marketing reason, as something to to like take around all the shows. But is this anything other than a Niken? I think we'll find out now. I mean, there, there are a few interesting things, which is, um, so, I mean, you, you told me earlier, so there's a few facts I can put together. Who knows if they're all still up to date, but I remember way back, like a year and a half ago, they were saying it was going to have a 36 volt battery, which was fucking insane. Because in order to get, like, 10 horsepower out of the motor, that would be 300 amps, which is not going to work. Right. That is a terrible idea. And I heard they um, they updated it so that it would be a 72-volt system, which is essentially the, the – that that's the voltage that um, – when we actually get around, get off our asses and get around to it and build our bike, which we have all the parts for is a 72 volt system is a bit more sane. So now this is realistically a 20 to 25 horsepower, um, electric motor on this bike for short bursts. Uh, and it may be sustained because they've got the, um, They've got the, the mid, um, what's the word? They, they've got the, the mid motor in it. It's not, it's not a hub motor, so they can cool it directly with coolant. I think you said they had a, a three kilowatt hour battery on the bike. For the mo- for for the bikes for the electric versions, they're supposedly to. Uh, repro- uh, replace or sit alongside the Ninja 250 and Ninja 400s it is a three kilowatt, uh, yeah, a three K battery. So a three kilowatt hour battery is roughly going to be. So the voltages they're doing, the power they probably want to get out of it. Uh, that's probably about, a f- well, actually, hold on. This article here says that the bikes that are compliant with the a one license will at best be a three kilowatt battery. So there may be a smaller option as well. Okay. So a three kilo, so a three kilowatt hour battery 
So one kilowatt hour on like an e-bike will get you on flat ground something like 30 miles. So with a bit more spirited riding going significantly faster. We're talking 50 miles, 50, 60. I would say it's probably the same 30 miles at 60 miles an hour. Is what it would be. So you're not getting any more distance. You're just doubling the speed. Yeah. Which I... is. Which is a, is a good trade off. Since the batteries. That three kilowatt hour battery. Is probably going to weigh like. 25 pounds. Maybe 30 pounds. See none of this makes any sense. In anything larger than a Grom. Oh, yeah, I think this is probably the upper end of what makes sense for the hybrid bike. Well, we're just talking pure electrics right now because the, the Kawasaki's Green Initiative is all about their their electric bikes that they're announcing, plus just the fact that they have a hybrid. And again, the hybrid, there's no numbers. There's no anything. It's just like they just... They just brought something and they said, look, there's a hybrid in this. This is both. Oh, no. no. So the- they don't claim it's good. They don't claim anything. It's just like, hey, we're innovative. We're thinking oh, no. outside the box. Oh, we're no. blah, blah, blah. Three, three kilowatts makes sense for a Grom or for some sort of scooter or as the, the cruising kind of commuting do- doodling motor of a hybrid. It does not make sense as the primary powerhouse of a sport bike. Not at all. Right. No. No, but if you pair that with a 250, and in fact, it may even make more sense to pair it with a 125. Like, and really, it should be a 125 dual tra- dual clutch transmission. Well, the one that but... the one that really gets me, too, is, is what people are talking about less, is they, Kawasaki also drug out this hydrogen powered motorcycle and we talked about i called this did i not call this six months ago when i said there when when we saw that uh kawasaki had hydrogen patents and i was like this is perfect they're gonna take this to every fucking motorcycle show and they're gonna fire it up indoors and go look no exhaust just water vapors just water vapors man And it doesn't matter, but you and I know that hydrogen is awesome for making power in the way a traditional ice engine does, but it's really big problem is you need a hydrogen cell and the energy density problem with hydrogen is even worse than batteries. You cannot have, like, this picture we're looking at of this hydrogen bike, I'd be shocked with that gas tank if it could go 20 miles. I'd be shocked if it could go that far. Well, yeah, because you have to have a a high-compression pneumatic tank to hold all the hydrogen in. And 
the walls, and hydrogen has like a fifteen percent energy density as far as gasoline does. Yeah. So you what you end up with is a tiny tank that looks like a two liter bottle, but then you realize that the walls are a quarter inch thick. Uh huh. And then you realize that the total amount of gas held in that tank is like at 30 atmospheres of pressure is about 50 grams of hydrogen. And also, once you've filled the tank, hydrogen leaks out of any gasket you can make. Uh Uh-huh. And So you better use it all that day. Yeah, because if you leave it overnight, there will be a third left than what you had in it the previous day. So the only solution is the hydrogen fuel cell. And that takes up even more space. And so the only way to make it worthwhile is make it a low-performance vehicle that just sips fuel. Well, this is why, like, when you see... um. When you see rockets on the launch pad, like when you that you always see the gas coming off them, that gas is spilling off because they have to super cool the fuel down so that it will turn into a liquid into like a slush that they can put into the tank and it subliminates well no it doesn't sublimate it's going from Masala. But um it um it's constantly evaporating off at such a ridiculous rate that if they had just capped off the fuel tank, like the whole thing would rupture. And they just have to accept that for every second that they don't take off, they're just losing copious amounts of fuel. Right. And it's not it's not an ideal situation. It's just life in running these insane systems that have to get this insane economy except that there is no economy in this in the general transportation industry and just general in regular life this just it's all losses every time we talk about alternative fuel or alternative energy vehicles i bring this up and i'm a fucking broken record but the only realistic answer is that everyone needs to get on board with the idea that scooters are not lame. The only form of electric of totally electric vehicle that makes any kind of sense is a scooter, a scooter with a top speed of 35 miles an hour with a 40 mile range. That is the only version of an electric vehicle that long-term makes any kind of sense. Yeah. I mean, well, no. Well, and e-bikes do as well. If you're but making, that's really it. If you're trying to maximize efficiency, absolutely. That's what we're trying to do. No, <laughs> no but it, I mean, in terms of, well, not so much maximize efficiency as put it into... We all want, we basically all want to be able to drive and ride like it's 2006. 
Like we want that like we want that dollar eighty a gallon like energy efficiency. Like we, we want to do that, but we have to make compromises. We we, we gotta yeah. find some we gotta we gotta find the format that makes that work that's easily distributable. Yeah, yeah we all wish we could go back to two thousand four, the the prime days of the Hummer H one. But <laughs> it's it's never coming back. Well no, they started with the H two. Well, no, the, no, no, the, the, um, no. They made a version, a, a civilian version of the original Hummer for like a couple years before the H two. Oh yeah, that you could get down to one mile a gallon. Oh, it was just <laughs> atrocious. I think standard, it was actually seven miles per gallon, but it was atrocious. Yeah, it was, it was just an affront. To what? everything <laughs> decent and civilized. And people loved it. What a and then the H2 was just an embarrassment to <laughs> all things automotive and engineering. And then the H3 was just a chick car. And yeah, it was truly a monument to excess. Yeah. Oh, back in like 2004, Hummers were so cool. People were buying... Uh, ex-military Hummers with, like, the motors blown and they would just put, like, signs on them, like vinyl signs, and advertise their business, because people would be like, well, there's a Hummer. I mean, that's a thing. It it had sort of, like, the cultural cachet of, like, a like a VW microbus or something. You could just park one on the side of the road, and people go, well, look at that. Yeah. You know? It's it's kind of like when TGI Fridays was an Applebee's Desert Storm was such a fun time, right? Well, you remember yeah. when, like Applebee's was like a place you could go and like it wasn't embarrassing to be seen, and Applebee's had all that shit on the wall, right? And and it was and, and it was all fake stuff, but it uh, everything just referenced something. I remember I went to an Apple. Well, I, for a very short time, I I worked in an Applebee's. And there was this moment where I, I I walked up to this table that I was serving, and it was like a family of like you know five or something, whatever. And the dad just like points at the wall, and there was like a tin metal sign that said Corvette, and it had a picture of like a '54 Corvette or '56 Corvette, whatever the first year fucking Corvette was, and above it was the sign. It was like, you know, the size of an A4 size sheet of paper. And it was like a shrunk down uh, concert poster for like an Eric Clapton concert in like 1976 or something. And he was like, and he, he just like put his hand up and just went like, Corvette, Eric Clapton. And I was just like, yeah, the, the, these are just cheap items referencing something. What what what's your point? It's also it's like what? Where does this cultural cachet come from? Like what? Why does why is this meaningful to you? But this guy was just not aware that cheap plastic crap existed yet, not had not yet fully sunk into his soul. You know, because in his world, a, a a concert poster was a concert poster, and something that that said Corvettes meant something, right? But these things didn't mean anything, right? Now, this is very much what's happening with this green movement. Something can say it's green, 
But is there anything behind it? Is it actually green? Does it actually mm. anything? Or is it just very easy to cheaply brand something? Or by means of just creating a hydrogen bike that can only go 20 miles and isn't useful to anyone and therefore imply the rest of your line of motorcycles that are painted this green color somehow get a bit of that credibility. Is that, is this what's happening? Because I argue this is what's happening. We're not making any green progress. Like this is just the modern equivalent of putting a Corvette sign in Applebee's. Well, yeah. Um, you got I, a little weird there. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, well, I can already tell you. Pass me the beer cooler also. <laughs> well, I can already tell you. This is. All right. So. Uh, I well, I can already tell you what the Green Revolution is because I'm living the Green Revolution. Oh, which is not fucking driving to work. Well, is that is yeah. pretty fucking sweet? Uh, I did also cut down my commute to like a mile and a half. That <laughs> that doesn't hurt. But yeah, the yeah, and when it's at all possible, I'm riding the scooter that gets like a hundred and nine miles per gallon. But yeah, the I don't know. I I've taken a couple shots at Cleveland Moto in this episode, but I do ultimate. I do actually really like them, and you know, in uh, their second to last or three episodes ago or something, they were like, "We're done with fucking vaporware. We're like, we're not even going to talk about it." Right. And to their credit, they didn't talk about this, which would they you know would have been the prime time to talk about it because this is just vaporware bullshit, right? This isn't real. This Kawasaki shit. This will be sold within a thirty square mile area. Well, no, this will be sold in one dealer. This won't be sold. This hydrogen bike, this hybrid bike, won't be sold, and these electric bikes will be. Very disappointing. Oh no, this will this will be sold in California, in like the thirty square mile area that has three hydrogen stations, in like in the whole area. I don't like, think this is going to be sold. I think this is just something they made to to take around to motorcycle shows. If they do sell it just in California, I guess it's just more Nikan. But you know, no, this would be like this. This will be sold in California in the same way that, like, here in town, like, here's a vehicle that you can only run on magic electricity that only exists between 10th Street and 48th. Like, this is... Yeah. Like, it's got it... In the same way that Eric has his shock collar that stops him from escaping out out of the backyard, like... This bike has a virtual shock collar that prevents it from escaping the three hydrogen fuel stations. It can For listeners that are on the up and up, Eric's my dog. And yes, he's named after Eric Buell. But um, we need to get uh, Eric Buell back on the show, by the way. Because apparently 
the uh the the uh the flow is going on sale ooh they yeah they had some sort of pre-sale on them or something like recently i've got to look it up but like it's they 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 put out a press release that was like hey you know pandemic and all this shit has like really slowed us down but this is actually happening and not only that they the like they've like updated the design a little bit they're like there's a couple more color options available now and some things like that so i'm plus i you know a couple more things have happened in the ev space and i'd like to pick uh eric's brain about it yeah and i know i did kind of rag a little bit on it at the time but i do think the flow is the the most sane like setup for an electric motorcycle it's like the exact same setup that we're building our electric bike in an 18 horsepower electric motor with a a battery that will go like 50 miles well no the, the the flow is like a 35 horsepower motor i think is it that much i th- yeah. i thought it was only capable of doing something like 60 a, miles an hour it's a beefy it's a, it's a beefy hub motor is it that much i thought yeah. it was like high teens low 20s horsepower but whatever no it is it's maybe pretty, there were two different engine options or motor yeah. options it, was, it, it was substantial that. But or yeah. they may have just upped the specs since I looked at it. Who knows? It's the EV space, and this is a bike that's not on sale yet, technically. So there's, you know, there whatever. Yeah. No, but it, it was significant. It was it was beefy, a really beefy hub motor with all the battery download with with the internal storage. Yeah, the frunk and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, let's... Um, okay, we need to make good in our promise now. You need to do your worst bike in the world. Okay. Have you got it ready? No. <laughs> of course you don't. I mean, I can do another news story here if you need time, if I need to buy you time or... Actually, while you're doing that, I'll just I'll just buy you time while you're looking it up. So you know the uh, the Misfits just had their 500th episode, and um, you know I was talking with Liza and Phil from Cleveland Motor earlier today. Turns out, um, Cle- uh, their their next move is that um, the Misfits are doing a cruise. And it's surprisingly affordable. It's only like six thousand dollars a person, and um, they're going to go to like a bunch of crazy countries like Chikistan. And I think you're going to get like on the cruise, they're going to like swing by a couple GP tracks like Coda and Red Bull Ring, you know. And um, I think it's an all nudist cruise as well. On top of that, so you know, keep your ear to the ground for that. All right, do you have your bike yet? <laughs> I'll keep going. So the I cruise, do. it's it's all booze included. But wait, what? I do. Okay. <laughs> what, what do you got? Oh, wait, hold on. And the other worst bike in the world this week is? The new Honda CL300 slash 500. 
Wait a minute. CL. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The new Scrambler. Oh, I I was inclined to be nice to this one. Okay. Um, nope. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. We're taking a hard pass. <laughs> All right. Let's um let's take a Let's take a hard look at this thing. Oh, no, it's a classic. Let's look at the actual bike. Not all of this weird, like, fan conjecture. I want you to look at the actual bike. I'm trying to. It's because it is so disappointing. Is it, though? I mean, yes. And I'll tell you why. Because there is a major conceptual flaw in this bike. I'm having trouble coming up with a picture for this thing. Why is this. This was first results like a month ago. I know. Why is it like nowhere all of a sudden? I can find some YouTube videos, but well, uh, you know what? Most of the people listening to the podcast aren't going to be looking at the picture. So how about I just you just keep talking? How about I just jump right into it? Okay, so Honda is make is bringing back the CL name for the bikes. Okay, here we go. Well, isn't it the Honda Rebel frame, but they've just put like a much higher seat on it? Yes. And here's where the problems start. Well, what's wrong with having a different flavor of the Rebel? We've talked about how we love the Rebel. We do love the Rebel. But the CL is not the Rebel. The CL is not. But it does Rebel things just with a higher seat height. I don't I don't even know how to reconcile that statement with reality. Okay. So <laughs> all right, you you speak okay. your piece. Speak your piece. Okay, look. So we used okay, back in the day, we used to have off-road bikes and street bikes. But really, the off-road bikes didn't exist. The off-road bikes were adapted street bikes where they swapped out the tires maybe swapped out the suspension they still had flat wide bars on them and it was just and they put high pipes on and yeah and and which was their their equivalent of snorkels no i'm talking about the people who actually just made their own off-road bikes from traditional street bikes right they put high pipes on them so they would get out of the mud yeah and they got they put different tires and 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 yeah if they could put a bigger a taller spring on the back they would yeah Yeah. and that was it that was it that was all of it they would do this to like an aerial hunter yeah yeah it was totally nuts it was awful but that's just what you had you know and it makes sense because in the same way, most Honda or mo- <laughs> most Ford Model Ts didn't ever get the benefit of asphalt. Right. Like, well, yeah, it was basically an off-road car from the get-go because it kind of had to be. Exactly. So it makes sense that the CLs were what they were at the time because Honda... In the same way that, you know, the way that mountain bikes Yeah, they're bikes like, were we'll created. sell you a bike the with the changes way, you were already going to make to it. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's the manufacturer looking at the consumer market and seeing what the, what the consumer culture is modifying their product to do and saying, oh, well, let's refine that 
and we'll sell that as a finished product. Yeah, we'll just give it to you straight out of the box the way you want it. Right. So, over time, the dirt versus asphalt paradigm evolves, and it diverges. And the dirt bikes become more specialized, the road bikes become more specialized, and more refined, and more refined over and over and over again. And now... The original concept of a CL does not exist in the way that it possibly could today because there's such a gap to cross both stylistically and functionally that you can't just make a bike and be like, oh, that look, that kind of looks like what a CL would look like today. It doesn't, it, this, this is a facade. It's all fake. It doesn't I agree. It work. is all fake. This, this is literally a Rebel 300 frame with a taller seat. It, it's it's got a different subframe. Is the Rebel 300 with is a Rebel 300 yeah, radiator? Is a Rebel 300 motor? This is Rebel 300 shocks, except that they've put gators on them. This is a Rebel 300 headlight. This is a Rebel 300 instrument cluster. This is Rebel 300 handlebars. This is Rebel 300 front fender, except it's been chopped just a little bit. Rebel yeah. 300 brakes, Rebel 300 wheels, Rebel 300 tires. Exhaust, it is just tank, and seats. Exhaust, tank, and seats. Yes, because maybe this just speaks to someone. This is the same Rebel 300 buyer they just slightly want this aesthetic. You're just yeah. trying to square the idea that Scrambler still means something to somebody. No, I that CL means something. It doesn't because no, because you're right. CL doesn't mean anything to anybody. CRF should. But CL no. That's long gone. That's long gone. Right. So, I I don't think the name should be brought forward. I don't think this makes sense. You this think it just cruel. should have been the 300 Scrambler? Yeah, just call it a 300 Scrambler. Or... Or the Rebel Scrambler. Or, yeah, or something. Or, like, the CS. We can create new... The Scramble. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. You know what? I would like this better if it was called the Scramble. I would. <laughs> the Scramble. Yeah. I would like it better. I'm going to admit that. I, that would endear me a little but more to it. Because, yeah, that underslung exhaust pipe there just like means that you literally cannot off-road it because you're just going to damage the exhaust. Yeah, to anybody who knows... It is physically impossible to do any scrambling with this just because of the exhaust configuration. There, I'll give you that. That that's that's kind of egregious. They could have spent forty dollars to give it a little bit uh, to route the exhaust pipe a little bit differently. Yeah, and those aren't even because you can't even put a skid plate on this. The, the exhaust is in the way. Yeah, I mean. I I guess they put you know high silica like rain tires on this bike but like clearly this is not going off road. And every CL you know every CL looks amazing. 
with 50-50 tires or even just straight off-road tires. But it is so divergent from an equivalent year. I mean, but it, no, the point is that at the time, it was so similar to an equivalent year CB that it made sense because that's just what the bikes were. But in terms of what off-road actual function is today versus what most street bikes are today, you cannot just take a CB, and you certainly can't take a Rebel and just raise the the ground clearance half an inch, put an extra half inch of travel on the suspension, and call it a scrambler or an off-road model, and then style it that way and make oh, it make well, any functional sense whatsoever. I agree and disagree. I think Triumph has uh, drug the concept of a scrambler through... I was about to say through the mud. That's, that's, that's not the way. <laughs> that's to the spread. opposite of what yeah. they've done. They 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 have yeah taken it through the the through the Vaseline. And they they've <laughs> drug it through the squeaky clean linoleum floors of a Google cereal bar so far that it doesn't mean anything. But they've taken it through so many yeah so many um, tech office ping pong uh, playing services. That it doesn't mean anything, but the, the 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 one thing that I'll meet you halfway on with this, because I think this actually does hold a lot of value for people buying their very first bike, is the fact that it is just the Rebel frame unmodified. To because a lot of people. Th- like their big thing about the rebel frame is how weird it is where the weird trapezoidal shapes meet the handlebars and everything and how the tent, but I think it's kind of beautiful the way the whole design comes together, that it's meant to both be visually pleasing and super minimalist. And if you look at this bike and you look at that weird bracing, and those trapezoidal shapes underneath the gas tank there, like they did just literally put a plastic cover over the whole thing to make it look like a scrambler tank. And that's really lazy. Like you couldn't have had like a version of this where you just change that one little bracing piece a little bit to make the design flow a little bit better because lots of people will say they hate the rebel design and they fucking hate blah, 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 blah. But like, trust me, nobody besides Honda is capable of making something to that price point that has that kind of design flow to it. And this is missing that design flow that you get in the rebel. This is aesthetically a little clunky. And that's a little against what the whole rebel concept is supposed to be. So if this really was a scrabble or 
What what was the word we just came up with? Scramble. Was it scramble? Okay. The, or scrabble. I scrabble is better. Scrabble. The scrabble. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if this really was a scrabble, I I think they could have made a couple small changes to the frame or the tank or something to make it flow a little better there. I don't mind that it's kind of a sparse bike and that you can see through the frame. I think classically you should be able to see through a scrambler frame. I don't mind the, you know, like where the, uh, the can is on the exhaust. I do mind that it is the rebel header pipe going right underneath the whole bike. And it doesn't even pretend to have any ground clearance. I, I don't mind the seats. I don't mind the tank itself or the pads. I don't the mind the light. I don't mind it. the wheels. How about the fact they're advertising it in straight up street tires? I don't even mind that because it scrambler doesn't really mean anything. And let's be let's face it, back in the but back CL... in the heady scrambler days, there were no off-road tires. There were just tires. But CL meant something. It, yeah, but it hasn't meant anything since 1976. But why does it have to mean nothing now when it meant something before? I It's, it's a disrespect. No, because since the 80s, CL hasn't meant anything because CR meant something. Yeah, but why piss on its grave? I, because hipsters, because whatever. Uh, no, it's fine. This is what this is. The, a lot of people look. You're telling me you didn't get into motorcycles because of the romanticism of bikes. This is part of the mythology and the whatever and the and the history and the whatever and and whether it's real or not, it doesn't matter. If it, it's about getting somebody on a bike that makes them feel a certain way. Now, I think there was a better way to do this. I think this is a little bit lazy with that that seat tank combination on the rebel frame. I I think it could have been done better. I think the exhaust, like where it's sitting, the 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 wheel, the wheel rims that they chose for it. The Fort Gators are a nice touch. I think the headlight's fine. Um, I uh, that, that tank combo looks pretty sloppy to me. I and I can just, I mean, you can never tell till you see one in person. But this looks like if the Honda Rebel is the is the is the costumes from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is the costumes from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. I'm seeing the seams here. This is this is the weird alien like cartoon form that the villain from Space Jam wanted to capture all of the the basketball players in on his alien theme park. That's what this is. Perhaps. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with you that they didn't execute this particularly well, but the concept of dressing up a rebel as a scrambler, I think will get a lot of people into writing. 
and ultimately it's a yes, good thing. If it's not and shit. That, well, it, there's nothing shit about this. There's nothing shit about this motor. There's nothing shit about this frame. There's nothing unreliable. There are no the, uh, like we've been uh, Claire and I've been riding one for over a year. There's the no vision. quality, no, reliability, there's... usability problems with this platform whatsoever. Is it basic? Yes. Is it worth the money? Sure as fuck is. Uh, I think Honda phoned this in. I'm with you. They phoned it in. But the basic concept, I argue, is worthwhile. But partic- but how this is done, just lazily putting that... Because that, that's not the tank. That's just a plastic cover made to look like a scrambler tank. That's not metal. That's going to be plastic. That It's the regular rebel tank underneath there. For sure. The reality is, if you want to do something like this, this needs to be a much bigger product, a, a much bigger project, and it needs to be a redesign, and it needs to be done, and it can be done as a low-budget option. But it needs to be done with the due care and consideration that Ducati put into their Scrambler when they first released it. You cannot recycle that motor as an off-road option. You can't just tack on pieces onto the existing frame. You have to look at the whole thing holistically and realize that even though the CL really was just kind of tacked on pieces onto the CB, that made sense at the time because dirt bikes at the time were road bikes that were that just had alternate pieces tacked on. Okay. But that's not how it works today. I think I know what you're saying now. You're saying, okay, if you're going to revive the Honda CL name, even if it's a bastardized weird version of it, that's not entirely true. Why couldn't you have made it a wide cinema release instead of this straight to DVD version? Yes. Okay. That's all right. We're on the same page about that. Okay. Yes, this instead of costing the same as a rebel, this should be like fifteen hundred dollars more, and it should be yeah, it should be more, more. It should be more premium. Yeah, absolutely. Than just the basic rebel. Okay, that I can go with you on. That's that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because this this is like a McDonald's toy level of like I, I think cynical... the wide release versus straight to DVD analogy holds pretty well. Yeah. This is I a like straight it. to DVD version of a of a Honda CL Scrambler. And you would have liked to have maybe seen the 650 twin wide release version. Or even just the 500 and then tack on a little extra money to it to make the fit and finish proper for what it should be. I would say that it would need I don't even know if it needs to be a new motor. I don't know if it needs to be... Oh, it doesn't need to be a new motor. There's nothing wrong with this motor. I would actually say that it needs to be... Especially for what the entry-level riders that want this to do. Mm -hmm. It's totally fine. I would say that it needs to be a whole new fuel tank and possibly fuel pump 
it needs to be a whole new complete exhaust system maybe even a new radiator um completely retune motor and even a new frame potentially like if you're going to yes, do some modifications if to the you're frame, if yeah. you're going to do a cl as a modern incarnation of what it was now even though the cl was essentially a cb frame and motor with different pipes and a few other slightly different accessories you have to recognize that for what the spirit of that bike was the modern version is so much more different than what a mid price or entry level price Honda street bike is today. And it required the due care and attention to respect what the CL name was. I agree. I agree. Let's see here. Hand me, hand me another beer and let's see what else we're going to get through on this show. It's the most I conflict we've had in a while. It is, but I mean, again, that's how people know that we're fucking honest with this shit, you know? Um, let's see here. What? I know there was other stuff that was grabbing my eye, but I can't, I can't fucking remember. Oh yeah, these fucking Brembo green brake pads. Um, I don't know what 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 have we talked about that 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 you meant to bring to the table this week, Swigs? I've I've brought up a lot of shit here. Was there? Um. Oh the the fact that every fucking weird every fucking motorcycle and weirdly every car magazine as well fucking frothing at the gash over weird Chinese knockoffs of Harley Sportsters. Yeah. Do you want to like take the laptop and bring some of these up? I I, I haven't oh. seen this particular phenomenon, but. Oh, uh, well, uh, okay. So, I mean, we're definitely seeing a Chinese invasion. Like we are no doubt. We we've seen over the last few years Chinese big Chinese conglomerates who buy some sort of stake in whatever Chinese company. Well, I don't even know if it even works that way where they can buy stakes in companies because they're all like owned by the government. But like they it's, compl- it's complicated. It's complicated, but they get some sort of involvement with a Chinese, you know, engine manufacturer or something. And then they source parts, and then they buy some sort of old European name, and then they start putting out bikes. But recently, they've just even stopped putting them out under some old European defunct name. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, this is how people felt about Japanese bikes in the early 70s, late 60s. And then by the 80s, we were all in on Japanese bikes. And now this is going to happen with Chinese bikes. I don't know that that's necessarily so. Just because it happened once before does not mean... It's certainly not going to happen exactly the same way again. Oh, absolutely not. So, China is really, really fucking weird when it comes to motorcycles. Now, we've had lots of 
we've had lots of like one two five models, two fifty models, and whatnot from China. Um, and those bikes make a lot of sense because what those essentially are are premium Chinese motorcycles that end up getting imported as budget motorcycles in the West. Which makes perfect sense. When it comes to anything in China over 250 cc's, you get into really weird territory. Because, now, you can find places where this isn't the case because China is fucking huge. And China is broken up into districts that are certainly not states, but definitely very distinct regions under different laws. And I think it's like in the vast, vast majority of China, any motorcycle over 250 cc's is illegal. And in fact, there are entire cities in China where it is illegal to drive a motorcycle. Like, motorcycles just aren't allowed in city limits. So when, like, 650cc motorcycles and one-liter motorcycles are being sold by, like, here's the perspective, you understand. Most of the, most SSR motorcycles aren't legal in China. Right. Definitely not the side-by-sides. <laughs> exactly. Like, like that, the whole, and, and this, you know, and, you know this kind of makes sense because China is essentially just this, in, this gigantic export economy. Everything right. is sold for other people or for other, for other nations. So Japan tried this for a long time and eventually bit them in the ass came the mid nineties. They, they made it through. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, it was touch and go people. Uh, we lived in Japan during this time, but in 19 people, this was, this was not broadcast wide in the West, but this idea of exporting more than you import will make you short term games. Short term games, like short. I've been drinking short term gains, but it will eventually bite you in the ass. You're you're essentially borrowing against yourself in the future when you do this. And all of Japan and South Asia was doing this through the seventies and eighties. If you're if you're current, if you can devalue your currency, and interest rates are low. If you check the cover of Time magazine in like, it was like, I don't know what month, but let's just say June 1996, it was a picture of a tiger in the corner of a boxing ring lurking, looking like Rocky at his worst at at like, you know, in the near the climax of Rocky four, like it was brutal and it was, and the, and the, 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 the title was, you know, it was just like, you know, has the Asian tiger been defeated? Like it was like 
we're on the brink. Is Asia going to just completely stop being an economic force to even be mentioned with? Like, is Asia going to become Africa in terms of economic power in 1996? Because they had just been exporting so much versus importing. I, for reasons that were all over the place. Some of them were racist reasons. Like, we're just too good to buy shit from them. Like, we make better shit, and we sell shit, and that's what we do. And it was just a short-sighted look on resources versus their ability to make shit. And I, China's doing a weird thing like that, and has been for, like, 20 years and at some point that clock runs out and i i mean you know sony goods never commanded a higher price than they did than in like 1995 you know i, I like it, when i think about chinese bikes i think they're way better than they were they're still nowhere near as good as Japanese bikes. And how long will they continue to get better before the bottom falls out? Because like you take how much Japan exported versus imported times that by a hundred for China, China doesn't buy shit from us besides like energy. I, you know, like they don't buy, I, uh, it's it's a weird model. It's weird, and I don't fully understand it, and I'll admit I don't fully understand it, but by every conventional rule of world trade, it's fucking bizarre. It's sort of like getting in early on VHS and then asking yourself, should I switch to Betamax? That's kind of what it is. I, maybe. Like I, it, I, I, just because Japanese bikes t like turned out to be better than people initially expected, no, doesn't okay. it doesn't? I don't buy this model that oh China's just the next Japan. I I don't buy that. That there there's no okay, logical sorry. thing that sorry, extends sorry, sorry. from one to the other. Let me get a little bit more concrete and actually talk about the bikes and just say, I think this. The story here is insane because I don't understand how anybody who understands anything about manufacturing and the motorcycle industry is publishing a story with a straight face saying, look at Harley Davidson, China's coming for you. And looking at what's being produced and thinking that this is in any way plausible or a useful story for any person who reads the article. Because all this article is signaling is that you're a fucking idiot. Like, yeah. straight up. Like, no. No. I don't care that a 650 parallel liquid-cooled twin from China makes more horsepower than... An early 2000s air-cooled Sportster 883. Nobody fucking cares. That's not any part of the value proposition of a Harley-Davidson. 
And if we did care, guess what? Uh, the 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 Kawasaki. Um, oh God, what's their six fifty cruiser called? Um, oh my gosh! Oh the 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 the. Oh, the inline four. You mean? No, no, no. The the six fifty twin cruiser. Oh, the Vulcan S. The Vulcan S. Yeah, the Vulcan S exists. Yeah, it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> it, the fit, the finish, the reliability, the reputation—it's all there. Yeah, with a reliable parts catalog that will exist past the current year. An honorable warranty. Yes, <laughs> a, an extensive dealer network. You certified think. mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Why do we give a fuck? For an extra $2,000, which equates like $13 or more per payment for all of that peace of mind. Right. Premium so, styling. But so the real story here is why am I hearing? Why did I not even search for this? And yet so many different really exciting stories about Chinese I, I didn't see so, so many cruisers, but I saw a lot of news at Ikema about Chinese bikes this year. I saw those too. And, and they were, I saw more standard bikes or like fake legacy bikes, but yes, there there's the Ikema had a big vibe this year of China's coming. China's, Is it? China's Is not. It? No. I don't think it I, is. I, I, this is this is like the one big economic trend. Like if you told me like you know is Russia going to invade Ukraine? Is the economy going to collapse in 2008? Is the housing market bubble going to pop? Is the tech bubble going to pop in 2021? You know, like all these major, you know, will Germany march into France? In 1939, like, there's many big historical events I would not be able to predict like everybody else. But if you ask me, is China coming in 2023? No. It is not coming. It uh, is from, I, from with, a lot of things I've seen, China's on the verge of economic fucking collapse. Yes. <laughs> Do you think we have a, labor, a labor shortage problem? Like, holy fuck, China's got a labor shortage problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. China don't... will not be able to make the shit that they want to sell us. Right? Like, you know, let's take a moment here. Uh, for for every old person in the United States right now that thinks our economy is a little sluggish because there's a bunch of people who are just getting paid by the government not to work, do you realize that the employment rate in the United States is the highest it's ever been? Ever? Right now? Ever. Ever. Employment's like at like unemployment somewhere at like six percent. Okay. 
it is generally assumed that somewhere around six and a half percent of people are just generally unemployable, either because of severe physical disability or their IQ is just too low. Let that sink in for a moment. If the if if the United States military had the ability of like say the Israeli military to just take all of the population once they reach 18 in for a few years of service, they would reject more than 9% of the population is just, no, we'll just make you exempt because you're not suitable for this. And we have... Can we turn this back into the China labor? I am. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. People think that the the, U- the U.S. economy is like like sluggish because people won't work. We've never had more people working than we do right now, and this is because we have we've never had less people able to work because we have a shortage of younger people who are of working age. China's problem with this is like twice as bad. It's actually a lot more than that. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's China is China. China has a problem where, well, as everyone remembers, like China had the one-child policy. Yeah, it's yeah. there were consequences, and they are becoming apparent now. Yeah, and you know, and, and, you know, generally, you know, stopping the world population from getting to like Judge Dread, like cinematic timely reference (laughs) like like apocalyptic like dystopian levels is probably a good idea but you cannot just stop population growth on a dime it doesn't really work that way you have to turn it around like a battleship exactly and yet china is now in this position where you know because of when they implemented the policy most of their workforce is really like, yeah. You know, if you go into a factory, you may be like, oh, okay, there's going to be like, uh, you know, maybe 20% of like 20 to 30 year olds. There's going to be a bunch of mostly like 40, 60 year olds. There's going to be a few guys that are close to require to retirement. China is like 50 to 60 is like 30 to 40% of their population in the workforce. And, there are no children to replace them. Right. It's all so these, about to... these factories that have been pumping out cheap plastic crap or whatever are slowing down because they cannot fill them with people to work them. Also, the 18 to 21 year old Chinese kids who are growing up and now have to start getting their own places and paying rent are looking at these 40 to 60 year olds who are working six days a week, 10 to 11, 10 to 12 hours a day. And they're saying, fuck that. Right. I really don't want to do that. Like, yeah, this is really, I mean, China has been totally unsustainable forever, but it's, we're now hitting the resolution. We're now hitting like, Mm -hmm. At some point, the balance comes due, and a lot of it's going to collapse. 
Yeah. I mean, China's not going to cease to exist, but... It's going to be a bad time. There's going to be a big course correction. It's inevitable. And I guess what? Like, for quality motorcycles, you're going to have to pay money for them, just like you always have. Okay? I I, I just personally... And like, I'm not going to put a bunch of, you know, now there's exceptions. Like you and I have been big fans of SSR for a while, but that's serving a niche market for a niche thing in a way that's just happens to be possible. Right. Well, also you can sell these off-road bikes that don't have to meet emissions with 1990s technology that's out of, you know, out of copyright well, also, and whatever, well, here, and it makes thing, total fucking sense. Here's one other thing I will say is I would not, I would also say don't not buy an SSR today because China's on the verge of collapse. Because if you just take all the tooling... SSR can move to India. SSR can move or, to or Canada or, or Thailand yeah. or wherever. Like SSR as a company can move, but if you're looking at the some weird like Franken bike made out of China that just like erupted out of nowhere, that's just this weird mishmash of of weird parts. Like I would. If it's coming out of nowhere, we should not be getting excited about this as like, oh, move us. Well, also just the fact that nobody fucking cares about the the the, the power of a Sportster eight eight three. Nobody fucking cares. That's not the point of that bike. And an air in a liquid cooled parallel twin making that power today doesn't even have the prestige of an ancient Sportster 883 that's air-cooled with more displacement. I don't know why that's even part of the conversation. I've been saying for ages it's a, it's a post-horsepower world. We're just looking for, can you put a customer on the bike, can they pull the throttle and feel something? Because... No one even gives a shit about horsepower or torque or bumper to bumper warranty or whatever in the cars they buy anymore. And these are cars and trucks approaching like 50, 60, 70, 80,000 dollars a lot of times, right? And you get people walking into Ford dealerships buying like F150 King Ranches, F350 King Ranches, not giving a shit, not asking the salesperson what the horsepower numbers are, right? Uh, Harley-Davidson people don't ask about horsepower, right? And I'll bet you a lot of Honda people don't either. It's just not the big concern every anymore. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, it'll go down the road. It'll break the speed limit. It's fine. The the idea of China competing on a performance level is ridiculous. Because we all know that they'll never be making things... Because the, the thing about big horsepower is 
to achieve big horsepower reliably, you need ridiculously small engine tolerances. You need to be manufacturing to like the tiniest gaps. Otherwise, your engine's just eating itself alive at high RPM. Also, and it, or or it's just like getting up to like ridiculous RPM and just like not making any power. So this and is so, this is where I need to eat some crow because I did probably a couple of years ago say like, hey, China's coming for everybody to eat everybody's lunch. And they could be for small electric scooters. And well, to a, to a degree, they were kind of really catching up and making a lot of interesting stuff, especially Zongshen was. Um, one of the things I didn't know at the time, if I had dug a little bit deeper, I would have known this a lot better. Um, China doesn't make any of their own tooling. All of their tooling for all of their casts, all of their molds, all of their computer chips, everything really sophisticated in the manufacturing process is still made in Europe. We we should disclose a little bit here that we do have some inside information into this and that we have family members, primarily our father, who have worked in... Uh, a lot of corporate business, a, corporate, a lot of manufacturing and, and corporate finance and big deals and shit that has to do with American diesel engines and um, European motors and electric motors and moving those facilities to China. And we have had firsthand accounts of how these things happen how standards degrade, why they degrade, where costs are cut, why they're cut, and an, an overall view into the ecosystem that is Western to Chinese business. We're not just making this up. But yeah, I, I, I overall, I agree. China's not coming to replace everything. China is not going to make the dent into the motorcycle market that Japan made. They're just not. Uh, but they will be something of some consequence. Uh, yeah. I, I think um, what they're doing is going to increase. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, you know, but I, it's not going to be like what Japan did in the late 60s and the 70s and 80s. It's not going to be that. It's just not. They're... But I think that they could make a very big impact in small electric scooters, which, again, I think is a, a, a market I place huge emphasis on that I think everyone's ignoring. I think they will domestically. I don't know if they'll export them. I, I don't see how they can't. It's it, going to be one of the few things they can do competently that they can export really well. Uh, but I, I eventually uh, everyone's going to have to come to terms with the fact that scooters will be back. Uh, there's no way around it, but yeah, I don't know this. It, this is, I mean, 
it's weird to see how many articles I have seen about from like reputable motorcycle magazines praising these weird Chinese motorcycles like they're going to eat Harley's lunch when it's really like East Germany showing up to the motor show. So it's really obvious to me. Um, it's the same reason that they couldn't give the Honda uh, CMT 11 or C- CMX 1100T an all out bad review. Motorcycle journalism was one, never really a real thing. And two, to whatever extent it was real to any degree, it's completely fucking dead. But there, there's just no such thing as someone for any half decently sized website being able to honestly look at a Japanese uh, Chinese bike and go, this is crap. It's explained very simply. Uh, Say something bad about it. And guess what? You don't get any more models to test out. That's it. Guess what? We're not going to keep, we're not going to fly your journalists out for these model releases because you gave us a bad review. It's, it's super fucking simple. Mm. I, the whole thing should move back to a model where you go to the shows, you test ride the bikes, you just come to your own conclusions. You go there on your own dime. Just like you and I go to 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 events on our own dime, right? The mm. and, If we got flown out to Ikema, everyone should take that as a warning sign. Right? (laughs) Truly. All other things being equal, yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, well, let me just summarize this whole thing. Uh, China is not coming to eat anybody's lunch. Uh, China's probably going to fucking collapse, but... SSR is probably going to get some golden parachute and get moved over to all the tooling is going to move, get moved over to India. Right. And that's probably going to be it. Don't Mm -hmm. look forward to anything from China because it's probably not going to happen at this point. I think there'll be a, there might be a couple other Chinese companies that pop up to do something like, you know, making, 250s and, and you know like Honda Rebel 300 clones that that do okay. Well, uh let me let me uh qualify that a little bit. Maybe maybe Zongshen will move over as well. Or Perhaps. or it may just it may just um in the bubble it may just eat everything else and it may be the only thing left. But it, yeah. There's not gonna it. There's gonna be some major consolidation, and China is not going to be exporting to everybody else. All right, I think this is, we're past three hours, so we gotta we gotta call this episode quits. But um, let's remind everybody here that um, episode two hundred, we want you to send in your worst moments of the show. 
Also, we're thinking we're going to try to get on as many past people as possible. Hey, Brian, our first guest ever, let's have you back on. Send us an email. Let's do it. Uh, we'll have Dr. Mike on. I think also for episode 200, we're going to play every game we've ever done. I think we're so going to do the 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 MCLU. I think we're going to do, yeah, Defend Your Stance. I think we're going to do Made Up Motorcycle. I think we're going to do uh, the name game. I think we're going to do, yeah, of course, Best Worst Bike uh, and Worst Moments of the Show. I think it's going to be a good time. So with all that, we would do the outro, but my phone died. So with that... Um, I don't know, let's just sing the outro, Swigs. All right, that's it. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm, cool. We sing it better when there's no music. All right.